0: This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. This morning, I woke up, threw on a podcast, added a scoop of Athletic Greens to about 12 ounces of cold water that I kept in the fridge overnight, shook it up, and I sipped on that while I made my coffee and my breakfast, and I loved it. I do that every day. It's super refreshing. It tastes really good. And I've come to enjoy that little routine almost as much as my first cup of coffee of the day, which is saying a lot. I live for coffee, it's the best but we're not talking about coffee. Athletic Greens. Why do I take it? One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, as many of you know, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic, when you live in a van like I do and travel to some of these remote climbing destinations that we know and love as climbers. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered and I love that feeling. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I've been taking collagen for a long time, and I've been taking the Fizzy Vantage Supercharged Collagen every day for over a year now, and I love knowing that my tendons and my ligaments have all the building blocks they need to get stronger. Supercharged Collagen is a research-based athlete-proven supplement that supports collagen synthesis in connective tissues and the force transfer matrix of muscle. What the hell does all that mean? Well, To me, it means if you want stronger fingers, you should be supplementing with collagen. I personally am taking collagen an hour before my finger training to try to get the most out of my training because finger strength is still my nemesis. It's still my greatest weakness, but I'm getting better. It's just taking a lot of time and collagen is absolutely helping. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. That's fizzyvantage.com. Use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I have seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. If you are a self-coached climber or you're interested in training for the first time, Crimped was designed to give you a professional training experience right there in your pocket. All of the workouts in the app are crafted by world-class climbers and coaches Tom Randall, who has been on the podcast, and his partner Ollie Tor of Lattice Training. You can find workouts that are tailored to help you improve your endurance, power endurance, strength, mobility, finger strength, you name it. Whatever you wanna train, there's workouts for you in the app. With CRIMPT, training on your own has never been easier. So check out CRIMPT. You can go to crimped.com, that's C-R-I-M-P-D.com, to get started. Or download the Crimped app for free. That's Crimpt.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store to get started with your training. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. And today's episode is actually a repost of one of my first interviews on the podcast. I'm taking a little break over the holidays, trying to work a little less and recharge the mental batteries so I can hit the ground running in 2023. But I still wanted to share something with you guys this week and I realized it's been almost three years since I launched the podcast. And I'm sure that many of you listening to this, many of you new listeners, haven't had a chance to go back and listen to all my old episodes. I get asked all the time when I meet new people and explain what I do with the podcast, or when I meet some of you guys out at the crag, I get asked all the time, what is your favorite interview you've ever done? And I always have a really hard time answering that question, first and foremost, because I don't have a favorite, but there is one episode that I kind of use as a go-to answer for that question, and that is the episode that I'm sharing with you today. This is my interview with Alan Watts. It was first published in February of 2020, episode four, and after almost 150 episodes, this one still stands out to me for a few reasons. Allen is a fascinating character in climbing history. He was absolutely at the cutting edge of American sport climbing in particular. He was one of the best climbers in the world in the mid-1980s and really helped to establish sport climbing here in the United States. I lived in Bend, Oregon for seven years. I climbed a lot at Smith Rock for most of that time barring injuries i was living out there spending as much time as possible in the park and alan really became a personal hero of mine because i was climbing a lot of his routes and really came to appreciate what he had done in that area and for climbing in the states as a whole so it was a real treat to sit down and talk with him and record this interview and i remember After talking to Alan, just thinking, man, even if nobody listens to this little podcast that I'm making, this is going to be so much fun. It's going to be so worth it to sit down with some of my personal heroes and hear these amazing stories. So I'm really excited to share it with you all today. I hope that it's the first time for many of you who haven't had a chance to go back to the earliest episodes of the podcast. And if you have listened to it, I hope it's been a couple years and you can enjoy it again. One thing I want to mention about this episode before we jump in is that we do talk about Alan's way of eating, which is quite unusual in this episode. I've talked a lot more in the last couple of years about disordered eating and my own experience with disordered eating. And I just want to acknowledge this right up front. If any of you are struggling with disordered eating or have battled that in the past, It might be worth skipping the first part of the conversation if you think that's something that might be triggering for you. Alan eats every other day, believe it or not, that's what he has found works for him. I found it really fascinating when I learned that about him and I was curious to ask him about it. I wanna be really clear, we're not promoting that in any way. This is what works for Alan. He doesn't even necessarily think that it's the healthiest thing to do, But for him, this has actually kept him from slipping into disordered eating. And that's something that he was struggling with for a while before finding his own way of eating. So take that for what it is. This is one person's experience and what works for them. I certainly wouldn't recommend it for any of you. So yeah, anyway, just wanted to acknowledge that upfront. And if you are concerned about that at all for yourself, if that feels like something that might be triggering, just scroll down, look at the timestamps, the nuggets for this conversation, and you can skip through that part and find a different timestamp and jump into a later part of the conversation. I wanna give a quick shout out before we jump into the episode. And give a big thank you to Yinan Lu. Yinan is a new patron. Yinan is supporting the podcast at the $30 tier. And that's just amazing. It's a huge contribution, super helpful for the podcast. And 20 of those $30 are going to really great causes. $10 is going to Climbing for Change. And $10 is going to Sacred Rock. You guys can learn more about those things At Patreon. If you check out patreon.com slash the nugget climbing, you can learn more about ways you can help out the show and benefit some other great organizations at the same time. So thank you to Yinon, Super generous of you. It really means a lot to me and to those other organizations as well. And you're the best. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. I really hope you enjoy this wide ranging and very special to me conversation. With Alan Watts. Class, class, class. No one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Because no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.
1: What is that thing there? What is that? This? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of just amazed at this van. I've never, <laughs> I've never actually been in one. That's. I mean, you're not suffering. No, <laughs> I mean, really, in a lot of ways, you've got a, you've got a better setup than than I've got in that house.
0: You know? <laughs> I joke about that. I I really think I might be more comfortable in the van. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's yeah, it's not. They might still call it dirt bagging, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's like, really it's not. This not. No, is, this is it's pretty, luxury. Living. I feel very
0: privileged and it's pretty Like, posh. what's that? That is a sound bar. It's a, of course, a yes. speaker. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah,
1: we it's... didn't have sound bars. <laughs> we, we had to listen to music without, well, cassette players in our car.
0: It did was... you travel around and live in your car for... I
1: did a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't that many places to go when it comes right down to it. You'd go to Colorado, you'd go to all the places in California, you'd go to Joshua Tree in the winter, Yeah, of course, Yosemite, but in Yosemite, you always had to drive out of the park to sleep in your vehicle. I, I think I remember having to do that. I don't know if that's still that, that way, but um, I wasn't like a Todd Skinner who just mm. life was on the road, right. right? I was kind of a homebody and I like sleeping in my bed, um, as minimal as it might be. You know, I had a focus of what I
0: was working on at at home was more important to me than, than traveling. Well, in a way, you had the absolute perfect setup, too. I mean, you had cutting edge climbing in your backyard.
1: I had a good setup. It didn't seem that way at the start. Okay. I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't like I was 20 years old thinking, hey, I've got cutting edge climbing right in my backyard. It's like, no, I, I didn't at all.
0: Yeah, 200 routes.
1: Yeah, but that's kind of what it evolved into. Mm-hmm. Looking back, it was just like, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Right place, the right time. But yeah. um, at the start, it just kind of seemed like I was
0: adrift. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I just read Hangdog Days, Jeff Smoot's book. Mm-hmm. Everywhere he went, it seemed like he'd run into Todd Skinner's white van with the Wyoming plates. And Todd was just anywhere and everywhere, like you were saying. But at one point he expressed, at least his impression was that Todd was pretty envious of what you had going on at Smith and was really hungry to find something like that for himself and ultimately did at the Wild Iris and outside of Lander, Wyoming. I had a, it was a safe, Smith was
1: a safe zone. It was a place to practice what I was, what Todd was working on, what I was working on you could kind of um, practice it outside of the fray. You mm. you weren't just, I mean, if you went to Yosemite or anywhere else and tried to do some, use those techniques or anything, you know, inspect something on rappel or hang dog, or you would just, it, you wouldn't be well liked. It wouldn't be well received. Yeah. But at Smith Rock, I could just do whatever I wanted to do. There was yeah. nobody there. And so it was, there was no opposition. There was not a, this side is against what I'm doing, and this side is for what I'm doing. There were just there was nobody there. There were just a few of us, and we were all kind of pointed in the same direction. Mm. So yeah, it was nice to be able to do that. If I would have tried to do it anywhere else, I wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah, I was not a rebel. I I, I was not somebody that was like you know screw tradition. I'm going to do things my own way. I mean mm-hmm. that's kind of what I did. But if I would have been someplace and you know, John Backer would have been my hero and like, don't do that. And it's like, okay, Mr. Backer, I won't, <laughs> you know? Right. But I I just happened to be someplace where I didn't have that influence. And, you know, that made all the difference.
0: Did you get criticism at Smith by, by visitors? S- by visitors, no. There was the old guard, people yeah. that
1: climbed before me. Um, Jeff Thomas was the person who I really grew up admiring and he did, you know the first 511s at Smith Rock and he was more of a traditional climber and he didn't exactly like what was going on there mm. but he had gotten married he had, he had gone off and was just doing his own thing he was never visiting smith and um so no the only people that were maybe were criticizing me at all were just just a few old guard people who just were still kind of hanging around but again there were so few climbers there was nobody Nobody there. Mm. I mean, five days a week, I'd go there, and uh, there wouldn't even be another person.
0: Wow, explains all the bouldering and yeah. all, all yeah. the traverses. Well, there
1: were no routes. Yeah, yeah. You 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 had to boulder because um, there were no routes. That's it's harder for this ge- <laughs> it's hard for this generation to understand.
0: It's like, yeah, it is. You know, like, if someone walks in there with a crash pad, it's like, what are you doing, man? don't you know what you're walking right past all these amazing routes to try? Yeah,
1: well, it's true,
0: yeah. So you have a really fascinating way of eating. I I met you a few years ago, I think we were at the Spring Thing event at uh, Smith Rock, which is a yearly volunteer day that we do. And there's a big dinner afterwards, eating burritos and everyone drinks beer and there's a slideshow. I think you were giving a presentation that year. Yeah. And there was a group of us standing around before dinner drinking beer and talking. I wasn't drinking beer, I think because I was projecting something and trying to send. And one of my friends is giving me a hard time. And you jumped in and you said, well, I can drink beer because I'm not eating today. And I, I just found that totally fascinating and proceeded to ask you all sorts of questions about it. So um, tell me about your way of eating. Well, it it just kind of evolved, even though at this point I'm set on it where
1: I, I don't think I'll ever change. Yeah. I mean, I, I climbed, you know, I, I had all my years of climbing, mainly in my 20s into my 30s. But by the time I was 33, my son was born and I was I was I had overuse injuries where, I mean, I was kind of done. I was burnt out of climbing. And the year before my son was born, actually, no, the day my son was born, I weighed like 148 pounds, which is more or less what I weighed when I climbed. Mm-hmm. And one year later, I was like 178. Oh, man. Yeah, and it wasn't because I was just eating junk food or garbage, but, you know, I wasn't going to McDonald's. It's just, I was completely inactive and I was eating three meals a day and I was 33. Mm. And genetically, I come from a, you know, especially my mom's side of the family, all, everybody is, they're robust, you know, big people.
0: It's <laughs> a graceful way of putting it. Yeah,
1: so I, I just kind of had that predisposition. And, and then I... Like okay, well I can't do this. I can't be. I can't be 180 pounds. And so I fought back. And, I, and a year later, I'd lost the weight. And then I was, you know, climbing 513 again. Hmm. But then I kind of got out of climbing again. My daughter was born in ni- 1997, and I just started doing other things. And um, if you don't have to be in shape to hang off your fingertips,
0: it's oh, it's a saving grace for breakfast,
1: me. lunch, and dinner. And you just you you get older, it's just easier to put on weight. It's, yeah. not, it's not any weakness. It's not any sort of, um, you're a slacker. You eat the exact same way you did when you are in, in your 20s. Maybe even better, probably better. Right. But you just don't. You're not as active. You're older. Your metabolism is slowed. So anyway, again, I found myself at 180 pounds, 190 pounds, you know, pushing 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Maybe by around 2010 or so, and at that point, I was kind of interested. My kids were older, and uh, there were, start, you know, like the climbing gym in Bend became a, a really good thing. And even though I kind of tried to get away from climbing, um, I was again, I was burnt out on it, and it kept following me. Climbing followed me; it wouldn't let me go. People were still interested, like even when. You know, I was traveling back when my son was a snowboarder and we'd go places and, and every once in a while, I, I'd be like, are you Alan Watts the climber? You know, and, and for a long time, I, I would just say, uh, uh, well, uh, I used to be <laughs> because again, I mean, I, I don't know if I ever hit 200 pounds. I, I remember seeing 197 pounds on the scale uh-huh. at one point. So. And nobody lo- would look at me and think, oh, this guy's got a, you know, he's really overweight. I was just a normal average, you know, I'm 5'9". I, I, yeah, I was overweight, but yeah. I wasn't... Um, but to be an athlete, I mean, what I found is that everything I truly loved doing, apart from being a dad and be with my family, but the stuff I did for me, all was dependent upon me being kind of fit. So mm-hmm. I couldn't, I liked, I grew up climbing mountains. I couldn't climb mountains. I'd go up to climb the South Sister and I feel like I was having a heart attack because mm. if you have 40 extra pounds, 50 extra pounds, it's pretty hard to do. Yeah, I'd go out to Smith Rock, usually because somebody would, I don't know, I'd meet somebody who was like, I'd know somebody, you know, like in the family or like, hey, I, I, you know, let's, it'd be great to go out and climb at Smith Rock with you. And so I'd go out there and I try to climb five, seven, it would be, oh my God, when did this, holds must have popped. When did this climb get to be so hard? There's some things you can do. You can play golf. You can be a great golfer mm. and be 40 pounds overweight. You can play tennis. You can run around the court, you know, but climbing is, you just can't, you mm. can't, there's just, you can't do it. It sucks. It's not fun at all. Yeah. So at that point, maybe 2010, I decided, okay, I, I gotta lose weight. I can't. I, I got to lose weight. But it was really hard to do. It was really hard to do. I tried to do like the uh, low carb, no carb. I guess it would be the keto diet now where it's yeah. just, you just pretty much, you would eat meat and like high protein and like yeah. no
0: carb. Was that like Atkins? At the, at the I don't time? even
1: know. You may be. And I I lost weight, but it just I mean I kind of went crazy. It just didn't mm. work for me. And I and I and I would lose weight and I'd put it back on. And eventually I realized, you know, I've got a issue with this. This is not this isn't easy. I, I might never be able to do it. I just don't have the the self discipline. I, I don't have the body type. I, I'm never going to be able to do it. And I don't know where or why. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny, but. I, I think th- for me, the start of it was I had a, I had a um, you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm in my 50s. And so you're in your 50s and what you should do is you have your colonoscopy, you know? And to do a colonoscopy, you have to fast for 24 hours. Oh yeah. And so you can't eat and then you take this stuff that, um, you know, so you clean yourself out and all that, and you have your colonoscopy. And I did that and I was like, wow that was really easy. Huh. Like that actually felt great.
0: Huh. Like,
1: and so I thought, I thought well, I, I might do that more often. And I started doing a little bit of research and it came up this like alternate day fasting thing. Mm-hmm. And I just decided like a mission, like, okay, I am going to, I set this date like four or five months ahead. I am going to lose 40 pounds. And I ate every other day. Mm-hmm. And eventually, as I got closer to my goal, which I think was back to be 148 pounds starting in, you know, 188, I, I sometimes would go two days and eventually it became kind of this weird, not so good thing where I was starving myself and oh. it was a, a, this weird obsession. And, yeah, you know, and I hit, I hit my target. I, I got back to my weight. It was great. But I also was really kind of flirting with an eating disorder. It's like, it's a fine line between doing that and developing some like where it becomes like a mental health
0: problem, essentially. I imagine it's really hard to transition to maintenance.
1: Yeah, and maintenance just didn't work. So in the next year, I actually, you know, I had put on like, I went for a doctor's visit and I'd put on like 20 pounds. And so again, it's like, great, I don't wanna have to face this again. And so I just decided, Okay, I'm just going to go back onto the old thing. I'm just going to eat every other day, and not so obsessively, not with a weight goal, but just I'm just going to eat every other day, and and that was seven years ago, (laughs) and that's still what I do. Yeah, I eat every other day. So, and now there's like this research that actually says it's not a bad thing, and there's like time restricted eating. Yeah, essentially, that's kind of what I'm doing, and it's I'm not really fasting because. You know, I can have a beer or uh, I can have my latte in the morning. It's not a real fast. It's but, not, you know. But mostly. I mean, real fasting is not even drinking water. Sure. Know? But I found for me, it, it worked on a lot of different levels. It um, You can see why there's, in religion, why there's fasting is a com- Element like why? What what sense? You know why? Why do people fast for Mm -hmm. for religions? Uh But I actually would find that it would make me make my head clearer. Oh wow!
0: Yeah, I would feel just kind of elevated. Would you say that you feel better on fasting days than?
1: Yeah, but I don't want to. The the thing about that is, for me, it's worked. For me, I lost, I lost the weight, and you know they always say if you're going to diet or if you're going to lose weight you can't diet you have to make a lifestyle change which right. is kind of useless in a lot of ways because you know if you're going to lose weight it's one way or another it's you're going to have to um suffer mm-hmm. sure <laughs> yeah and but for me eventually it became where like right now i've always kind of had a problem with moderation i had a problem with moderation with my climbing mm. and it's just it's really hard to just like oh, I want to have that cookie. I love chocolate chip cookies and I want to have my cookie, but no, I don't eat cookies. I'm done with cookies. I will never eat cookies again. Mm. And the next day it was like, oh God, look at that cookie. My wife makes cookies or brownies are like, oh Jesus, I've got it, you know. All the time you're making a decision like willpower. Willpower, we all have, you know, kind of a limited reservoir of willpower. And if we deplete it, it's kind of exhausting. And so by doing the every other day eating thing, I made a decision, which I made years ago, that this is what I'm going to do. It requires no willpower. Right. None. There's no, like today's, I, I don't eat today. Yeah, I ate yesterday. I'm not eating today. It's not like there's any denial, any uh, like, oh gosh, I really wish I could eat. I just don't eat. It's nothing. It's it's like nothing. There's no willpower involved. Yeah, and because of that, I'm not, you know, I'm not a overweight person. My weight fluctuates up and down. Sometimes, you know, I feel like I'm after the winter. I'll I, sh- I should lose a few pounds. And even then, I'm not like just a total psycho with it. It's not like. Oh gosh, Thanksgiving. Well, that's a not an eating day. So sorry, family. (laughs) I'm just going to sit here and not eat in judgment of all you guys who are eating. Yeah. So, and if I'm on vacation, you know, I went to Ireland for two weeks. Well, I'm not in Ireland thinking, oh, well, it's not an eating day. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm just, so I'll go two weeks or, you know, and, but then I just go right back to my routine. Yeah. And it works. I don't think it's for everybody. I think it's, I think there are people that it's just, totally wrong for them, I, Yeah, I, but we all just figure out our, our ways. And for me, it, it works. It's kind of almost a lazy, easy approach because I, being light doesn't mean that you're in shape. Okay. It, it doesn't. Right. And so, and I've definitely lost muscle and this, I mean, you, you still have to get in shape, but for me, being light means that I am able to play the game. Mm-hmm. I can I can be a climber again. I can at least play the game. If you're 40 pounds overweight, 50 pounds overweight, you can't even play the game. Yeah. But now for me, at least, if there's a time when I decide I want to train, I want to work at it, I can do it. And before I did this whole eating thing, it's like, okay, I miss climbing. I really want to be a climber again. And then you realize, well, the only way I can be a climber again is to I have to lose all this weight. and so, which is takes months and, you know, a very long, long time. and And now, with what I do, it's always there. It's always mm. there. I don't always choose to take advantage of it, but i it's just one it's on the table. It's on the table. yeah which, yeah, exactly. So, and for me, there's no reason to stop doing it 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 doesn't leave me exhausted it doesn't i i I think i'm less crazy now than i was before i I think it's a it it actually works but again i i'm reluctant to like there are other people who it would be a could be a very bad thing i've never been a person who looks at myself in the mirror and thinking wow i sure would like to Mm. you know have my beach body and um i'm not doing it so i'll look better right i don't care how i look i'm 60 years old it doesn't those days are done.
0: That's fascinating. There's some really interesting research in the last several years around moderators versus abstainers. And I think that's an element of it too, where you sound like an abstainer. It's easier for you to just say, I'm not eating today than have to make a thousand different decisions. Yeah, I can't,
1: I can't do that. It's just, I don't have, I can't do it. I can't be,
0: I can't abstain.
1: I I think that that's, it's a lofty, like I admire people that abstain. I I almost don't believe them.
0: (laughs) Okay, so for you... If you say, I can never have a cookie again, it makes you crazy. But saying, I can't have any food today is way easier because you know that there's nothing. It's not, there's nothing to it. I mean, yeah. I can have a chocolate milkshake tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can have a cookie, whatever. And again, if I really want to be at my best, I take out some of the things that are junk. I, I won't mm-hmm. have that cookie or I won't have the chocolate milkshake or I'll drink less beer or that sort of thing. But even at my worst, even if I'm at my worst, I'm not realizing that I have 40 pounds to lose.
0: Yeah, yeah. And some people are moderators. They're able to eat one cookie and then they're satisfied and they can stop eating cookies. For me, I'm kind of more like you where I can't just graze on one and then be satisfied. No, I mean, I could, if there's a
1: plate of cookies, you had a plate of cookies right here. <laughs> if it was today, I can't eat any of them. If it was tomorrow, <laughs> I'd eat the whole plate. <laughs>
0: So I had asked you if you thought this would work for you back when you were climbing. And it was really interesting to hear that you, I mean, I think you said, no, it it doesn't seem like it'd be optimal for performance, but you kind of did that in a way anyway, because you were just so focused on the climbing. I mean, back when I was climbing, I did, looking back, I essentially did
1: time-restricted eating where I ate all my, pretty much ate all my calories and just like one massive
0: meal. At the end of the day? At the end of the day. So you were just out there so preoccupied or distracted by the climbing that-
1: I wouldn't bring food. And eventually I started bringing like energy bars, like power bars, that okay. was the first energy bar. And so I'd, I'd recognize that you needed you needed to have some fuel. Mm-hmm. and But a lot of times it would, I would force myself to eat it. I've never been out at Smith Rock or anywhere climbing in the middle of the day thinking, Wow, I'm really hungry. Hmm. I, I it never, I'm never hungry. I'm never thinking of that. But you need fuel. So, and if somebody did that sort of um, routine that I do now, I mean, what I would recommend is you just—it's it, not absolute. you just, if you were climbing, yeah, have something to have something to give you some energy. Mm-hmm. Or if you're training, have some protein. Have a protein, like a protein mix or something in a drink. Or yeah because you still need that. I mean, you don't, um, like I, when I lost the weight and kind of the way it's been for me is it, my focus has just been to stay light rather than I'm not working on trying to put on muscle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you really are, I don't I don't think this would work too well. <laughs> I think it would be a, a mistake. And so yeah. if I was a whole lot younger and I was still trying to do this, um, yeah, I, I, I'd you know, you can create it and and do it however you wanna do it. It's Mm -hmm. not like it's, you know, you're- There's no rules. Yeah, there's no rules, you're not cheating. I mean, my daughter will say, well, you're not really fasting because you're drinking coffee or with, you know, with milk in it or you're drinking a beer. And it's like, yeah, there's no, I'm not, it, it, there are no rules. This is my fast. I don't care what the definition is. Yeah. This is
0: what works for me. No dogma. Yeah. So you've been climbing in the gym again. How do you think about that with your eating? Do you plan your climbing or training days on the days that you eat? or not at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I don't notice any difference. Wow. Where I'll notice difference is there's
1: times when I've I've taken off. I think the longest I've gone is like three days without eating. And I'll notice at that point, Mm. I don't have as much energy. Yeah. Um, Two days, I don't have as much energy. One day, it doesn't matter that much. Huh. But also, I'm very used to this. After doing it for seven or eight years, your body just kind of adapts. Yeah, you know, for a long time, it's going, it's in the starvation mode, and eventually, it just gives up. (laughs) And it's like, okay, well, this is the new norm. Yeah, you know, so your body adapts.
0: Gotcha, cool. So you started climbing at Smith really early, age 14, I think was the first time you went out there. Well, I was 14 when I actually went out there
1: as a climber. Okay, I mean, I. You know, I grew up in Madras, which is 20 miles away. And
0: mm-hmm. I um, I went to Smith Rock probably every year of my life. I think you joke at one point in a video that I saw that your first time at Smith was before you were born. Yeah, there's a picture
1: of my mom <laughs> with my brother and my sister who are older. And my mom is like obviously very pregnant. Uh-huh back then you could drive up the Burma road, Okay, you know, and we're up there and you could see some of the rocks in the background. It's a picture of my mom and my brother and my sister. And I'm obviously there, (laughs) you know, maybe in two months before I was born, I was, I was at Smith rock. So yeah, it was, I was there before I've told people that I've, you know, Smith rock is a place that I was born. I was, I visited it before I, uh, before I was ever born. And I like to think in some, some way that after I'm gone, my
0: my spirit will still, still oh, be there. I love that, Alan. That's great. So in 78, you go to University of Oregon with Bill Ramsey and you guys meet Chris Jones, Alan Lester, and you start climbing a lot. And I have this note here that just says, and it's a quote from you, it says, every variation imaginable. Can you tell me uh, about the climbing you guys were doing then and what that looked like?
1: Well, I started climbing at Smith Rock... In 1975, I mean, before that I had climbed, my dad was a climber, we climbed mountains. My dad never, he never took me to Smith Rock. We never climbed. I made my own harness out of, you know, hemp rope. (laughs) I I, I bought gear. I I was 10 years old and I wanted to be a climber. And, but I had to meet people. And when I, the first few years at climbing, I was climbing at Smith Rock. It was a very much adventure climbing. I was, it took me three years to go from five from beginning being a beginner to climbing 10a mm-hmm. and really if i hadn't met bill ramsey I, I wouldn't have i mean i didn't really meet bill we were bill and i were born the same day in the <laughs> oh same, wow. in the same hospital oh that's amazing and our moms were roommates in the same recovery room okay i'm like six hours older than bill did your dads climb together yeah too? They, my dad and Jim Ramsey, Bill's dad, you know, if you look in the history section of the guidebook, you'll see those names together. Oh, great. Yeah. My dad was more of an alpine climber and, but anyway, so the the family, there's even some, uh, you know, our families growing up in Madras, of course, there was like, you know, a Ramsey marries a Watts or, so there's, we're even like related by marriage, you know? Oh, cool. the, The Ramsey Watts names in Madras are, are, yeah, they're big. <laughs> so anyway, but it wasn't until I was in high school that I'd know, known Bill my whole life, but I started climbing when I was a freshman. And it was like later on when Bill started being interested in climbing and I took him out climbing for the first time. And, but real quickly, he was the more aggressive, more, um, I don't know, he, he just had a real like personality just like to, he'd take, he was a little bit less reserved. Okay. in every way, you mm. know, um, just, he was more of an extrovert and and more of just, you know, he was like a high school wrestler and football player. And I, and that was not my my thing. I was, a, I was a runner, you know? Yeah. So when I started climbing with him, he just, at first I was kind of showing him what climbing was about. And then real quickly, he was the one that was kind of pushing me. Cool. Yeah. But then I was kind of competitive. I had a brother <laughs> who was five years older. And so I just, my whole life, I just simply, Lost at everything because my brother just—it was harder to have a brother that much older. Everything you would play at, he'd always beat you. Yeah, and so I just became pretty competitive. And so when Bill started to push me a little bit, it's like I responded.
0: Uh huh. And then Bill, we it just we fed off each other. And you said freshman. Is that are we still talking? This was freshman school? in high
1: school. Got it. So you're still in When I started madrid. climbing. Yeah. But then when we went to the U- University of Oregon. Bill told me he was going there and he was going there because there was a climbing area right in the middle of town called yeah. The Columns. And I, I was like, great, sign me up. That's where I'll go. This is in, in Eugene? In Eugene. And yeah. so that's what we did and we were roommates. And so I went to the University of Oregon for you know everybody, they have their colleges, you know, people they... You know, you you're a high schooler and then you then you think about the college to go to. And for me, it was the right college to go to. It was the absolute perfect place. But kind of for all the wrong reasons, it wasn't because of the programs they have or the academic reputation. It was because of this short little columnar basalt in the middle of town that I could walk to. Yeah. And so we just started we'd go there. we the first day we were there, we we went climbing and and then I met Chris Jones, Alan Lester. And I don't know, it's kind of like um, just looking back. I mean, I truly believe this. I don't, I'm I'm not like a religious person. I I don't, but there's some connections there where if you just simply have something in your mind that it's like, this is what I want. You have this target thing that you're looking at. This is what I want. Somehow, if you just stay the course, you tend to meet the people you need, they come into your life. Somehow you just connect with the people you need to do what you wanna do. I, d- I don't think anybody who's done anything in their life would dispute the fact that they, nobody does it on their own. Mm-hmm. We all meet people. There's all people that we meet along the way, get, to get us to where we wanna go. Mm-hmm. And I would have done nothing in climbing if not for Bill Ramsey, Chris Jones, and Alan Lester. That combination just, that was perfect. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, we would climb at the columns and it was like this... Is it a top rope crag? It's a top rope crag and it's really small, but it's kind of legit. I mean, it's real rock. It's like low angle, columnar basalt, pretty smooth with some face holds and and people have been climbing there since the 60s and so some of the thinner cracks have been pin scarred out Mm. and some of the other cracks were wide enough where you could jam them, Mm -hmm. but you would just top rope. We would just top rope with, you know, giving each other hip belays... And you would just, that's what you would do. And and it didn't take long before we did all the cracks. The hardest crack was maybe 5'11". And, and then, mainly inspired by Chris Jones, we just started doing things, eliminating this hold or doing it one-handed. Hmm. And so we did everything one-handed and just... All these, I mean, there were probably hundreds of variations. Some of the hardest climbs I've ever done in my life, <laughs> I did there. Yeah. So when I went to Eugene, I was a, I mean, I had done like karate crack with Bill and zebra, you know, 10A. Uh-huh. And within two years of Eugene, going to Eugene, I was climbing 512. Wow. Just yeah. pin scar cracks and just these bizarre little problems. So I had the, I had the skills and I
0: totally learned it there. I learned to climb in Eugene. Was it just play for you guys, or w- did you have a sense that you were training for something? I mean, it was play, it was both. It wasn't
1: a sense for, there almost wasn't any training for anything because it climbing didn't exist the way it does now. You yeah. Didn't, um, we had a real inferiority complex. Where okay. Chris would go to Yosemite and see like the boulder problems and, you know, midnight lightning or, and we had this idea that, you know, the back Backer and Calc and these other people, you know, Ray Jardine, Mark Hewden, they were gods. They were doing things that we could never even imagine. And so we sucked. No matter what we did, we sucked. But we would work hard and we would try. So we, we wanted to just get better, even knowing that there's no way we would ever even begin to enter the realm of the people who were really good. Hmm. But by doing that, it's... It's kind of like, if you have a bit of an inferiority complex, it's not a bad thing, because you, once you start thinking that you've arrived, once you start thinking, whoa, I'm really good, then you probably aren't going to improve anymore. Uh If you're thinking like, okay, well, I did this new 512, but I still suck compared to everybody else, then you just keep pushing and keep working hard. And that's what we did for a very long time. We just Mm. kept pushing and working hard. And so by the time I finally left Eugene and showed up at Smith Rock, I I had some skills. I actually had the ability, I mean, fairly exceptional ability to climb, you know, a very hard grade. But um, entering this place where, in in this sport that didn't really even exist.
0: Yeah, so you come to Smith after college and... My understanding is that you pretty quickly climbed through all the routes that were there. There was 200 routes or something like that. Yeah, it didn't take, there were like five 511s mm-hmm.
1: and it didn't take, I mean, I did second ascents of bunches of the, I mean, it didn't take very long. Yeah.
0: five of them. And like it, Wortley's it, Revenge. And, yeah, I did a second ascent of Wortley's. <laughs> that's know. awesome. Yeah. And so then at what point do you start noticing the face climbs and and what led you to think about Bolting. Um because I know a lot of people saw those face climbs and they're like, oh, those look really cool, but how are we gonna protect those? And it just didn't even occur to I don't even a lot think people. people
1: looked at it that way. Okay. I don't even think people looked at the face climbs and thought, oh, well, these are cool. How are we gonna protect them? Yeah. I mean, I didn't even do that. When I started climbing at Smith Rock, all I was thinking about is there are free climbs. Like all the every route that Jeff Thomas, who had done the hardest, he had done those five, six hardest routes like Wortley's Revenge, Shears of the Fisherman, Lion's Chair, those were all aid routes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What he did is he freed the aid routes. And so that was the paradigm that I stepped into. Hmm. If you were a climber you f- at Smith Rock, you freed the aid routes. And so I looked at the routes that he hadn't done and which ones needed to be freed. Hmm. And that was my focus. So I okay. freed like Sunshine Dihedral yeah. was an aid route. And so I'll free that. And there were a whole bunch of other other routes here and there around smith rock and so for a long time that was um you know that's just what i did and it took it took time to kind of it's a very different thing when you're up you know trying to not jamming basalt cracks but actually trying to be it's you know leading routes that are at smith rock it, it took me a, a while to, to really get into it to get good at it but real quickly i did the aid routes that i could do i freed them and then there were other Aid routes that I couldn't do because they were too hard to free, mm-hmm. and but but that point I was totally committed. Like climbing was, I had dropped out of school. This is who I am. This is what I am. I'm a climber, and this is what I will do. And it, I mean, by that point, Alan Lester and Chris Jones had moved to Colorado. Mm. Bill Ramsey moved to California to go to pursue his doctorate in philosophy at UCSD. And I was just left alone. Hmm. I mean, Alan was trying to get me to move to Colorado. Bill felt sorry for me. I, I was just like at Smith Rock, just banging my head against this, the wall trying to climb. I, I don't know even exactly why, but it's like, this is just
0: what I wanted to do. Did you ever think about leaving and relocating? No, I, okay.
1: I, I never. Well, I actually did. I, I was going to move to Colorado at one point, but uh, but that was a little later on and... Initially, no. It was kind of I was just completely committed to Smith Rock for some really strange reason, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, once you'd done all the aid climbs, then you started looking at well, what cracks? What other cracks haven't been done? So then you do those, and and then it was like, oh god, these things really suck. They're painful, <laughs> and they're they're just this isn't fun. Yeah. And so eventually, you start thinking like, well, maybe you know. The faces are obviously impossible. There's, you don't see any holds, but why not? I'll just wrap down and look. And so you wrap down and it's like, whoa, there's some holds. Mm. And it's like, wow, there's just one face at Smith Rock that has holds on it. <laughs> and then you wrap down another thing. It's like, whoa, this one has holds too. Now there's huh. two faces. Amazing. There's two faces, vertical faces at Smith Rock that have holds. How lucky I was that I stumbled upon them. And then you wrap down a third and a fourth and a tenth and you realize, well, wait a minute here. They all have holds. Everything has holds. And it just went pretty quickly from just a shift from when I was just like, was climbing at this uh, area that was uh, climbed out and climbing cracks that were increasingly unpleasant. And then everything shifted where I was looking at all these faces and Hmm. especially Watts tots and... But especially chain reaction where yeah. once those were done and they were actually done a day apart. Oh, um, no kidding. I mean, I did Watts tots, I had bolted in 82, I think June of 82 uh-huh. and I had tried it that summer. It's not a good summer climb, No, <laughs> but it was just, it's kind of a one move wonder, but it was just a move.
0: It was just, it was harder than I could do. And 12B it's a really thin technical yeah, climb.
1: I left Eugene in after spring term of 1980, I spent two years at Smith rock, even, I don't know, 82, two and a half years, just doing a bunch of oddball things, freeing a few aid routes. And I was just kind of lost in a lot of ways. I was just, I broke up with this girlfriend and I was just kind of lost and despondent. And and I was living at home and I was like painting my parents' house and they'd pay me because they were, you know, worried and feeling sorry for me. But eventually they came up with this proposition. It's like, we really want you to go back to school and we will pay for you pay for your you know we'll support you to go to school mm-hmm. it's like oh okay well there's a college in bend and oh. so the start of 1993 i moved to bend and suddenly i had my classes and i this is 83? 83 83 okay. january you know the second of january is when i moved and all of a sudden i wasn't at home I had my classes. I had to do well in my class, but it wasn't that hard to keep up with some things. And I had massive free time. What am I going to do? Well, I go to Smith Rock Yeah. every day. And so I would just start checking things out. And so at that point, because in February, I did Watts Tots. I finally succeeded on that. And I'd been working on chain reaction. I actually yo-yoed it the okay. first time I did it, which I didn't count. But then a week oh, later, interesting. I, I, I did it, you know, Red pointed it. Mm-hmm. So just in that that time, I mean, in the early 82, I was just, or early 83, I was going to community college and trying to figure out what I was gonna do with my life. And then just in like one week, it went from like kind of flailing to where all of a sudden, it was like, I saw the future. Oh, wow. Not just at, I mean, at first for me, it was at Smith Rock. I saw the future at Smith Rock. But eventually, I mean, really, looking back, I saw the future for American climbing. Yeah, so I went from being kind of lost to having just absolute laser focus on what I wanted to do and what my future was going to be. Yeah, and it was a time that I I'm very fortunate to have experienced that because it was, as it turns out, I mean, I had doubts along the way, but as it turns out I was right. Hmm. And then again, I met the people people would come in, you know, Todd Skinner and all these people. And it just, it just exploded and it became what it became.
0: Oh, that must've been so exciting.
1: And what was really cool about it is just that it, um, I don't know, in doing these routes and also there's nobody telling me no, like that you can't put bolts in on rappel Mm -hmm. because you're not going to do chain reaction on lead. Right. And Nobody was telling me, oh, well, you can't hang dog. That doesn't count. I would do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. But there was a time when in 83, 84, especially, where I'd kind of stumbled upon sport climbing. And I was bouldering. I was practicing, you know, doing new routes. I was climbing every day. And so all of a sudden I was using these tactics that nobody else in the U.S. was using. And I went from being a decent climber to a really good climber yeah. at that time. Yeah. Largely because I was the only sport climber in the US. <laughs> yeah. And so it was an exciting time to be able to go elsewhere and climb routes and realize, whoa, well, all of a sudden you know, these things aren't that hard. Yeah. Hardest routes in Yosemite, it's not very hard.
0: Yeah, you went and repeated the stigma. Yeah,
1: these things just weren't hard. Mm-hmm. And then eventually everybody else started climbing that way. And real quickly, everybody just shot by me. But, <laughs> but still, it was a fun time.
0: It's so interesting that you had that sense of freedom and no one was telling you no, but then you still didn't count the yo-yo ascent. And you already had, even in 83, you had this... Perception, at least for yourself, that red pointing was the authentic, and that kind of came from Jeff
1: Thomas at Smith okay. Rock because he would red point things.
0: Okay. Oddly enough, he would actually
1: fall and, and occasionally even hang dog and, and do a move. And oh, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, but he he still kind of bristles if I talk about that. He's like, "Why well, did that on just this one route?" And but somehow that to me became like, kind of what I was trying to do. I was following mm. what what he did and. Um, yeah, I had weird, there were weird things. Like, it wasn't just the yo-yo. I had this very strict, very strict, no, um, you couldn't leave gear behind. Okay. So no quick draws. Yeah. You couldn't. And so when I did the first time I actually red pointed chain reaction, it was the first time that I had tried a route. Again, it's kind of like weird things. You'd I would never try a route more than once in one day. Oh, You would go down to the park. Usually you wouldn't even warm up. It's like, okay, today I'm gonna do chain reaction. You try chain reaction, you'd fall. You'd Uh hang, you'd work out the moves, you'd go to the top, you'd lower down, you'd do something else and you'd leave. Oh, interesting. And so at one point I was, after a few days of that, I was like, God, I fell again. It's like, you know, I'm not very tired. I actually feel pretty warmed up. I'm gonna wait. And so I waited a couple hours and I tried it again. And it's like, whoa, I'm really close. I'm gonna wait. And I rest a couple hours and I try it again and I do it. Wow. It's like, whoa. You can try something more than once in one day. Yeah. But because I was doing that, I would lower down. There'd be quick draws hanging because that's, you couldn't, the route's too steep. And, but you couldn't have fixed quick draws. So when I actually did it, I climbed up. I would get to the first quick draw. I would unclip it. I would clip it into my harness. I would clip it, unclip it from my harness and reclip it. And so every quick draw, I, would i get up to the lip and i'd like the quick draw over the lip i'd unclip it clip it back into my harness unclip from my harness clip it back in because that was what you had to do wow so i had these like weird little rules it wasn't fair to say that i didn't care there was no ethics and it mm-hmm. was, there was no style or whatever i had the. but who who creates the you know who decides what what is legit and what's not it's you know, it's, I, that's just the way I was doing things. Mm-hmm. Some of those things I've obviously were rejected
0: and some of them are still, that's what people still do. How long do you think you continue doing it that way? The, the true red point hanging the gear versus, I guess, pink pointing.
1: It wasn't until, I never put, I never pre-placed gear. I never like pre-placed nuts ever. Okay. That was just not what I did. It wasn't until the Europeans showed up mm. that I realized like when, In 1985, Kim Kerrigan, Johnny Woodward, and and Jeff Wigand showed up at Smith Rock, and um, they were like, oh, well, you know, Wolfgang yo-yos all of his routes, and, you know, Punk's in the gym, that was was yo-yoed. I mean, he'd leave his rope overnight, and he'd he'd yo-yo it, and everybody's yo-yoing things, and so, real quickly, it was like, oh, I don't have to do things this way, or, you know, fix quick draws, leaving quick draws, everybody does that, and so. There were some things that, like the yo-yo thing, didn't last. That that isn't you know that real quickly was like just kind of that's not what people do. Mm-hmm. But there was a period of time when that was legit. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the way that people were doing routes. A lot of the hardest routes, you know, the hardest crack climbs in late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, the European influence just kind of I don't know. It kind of uh, by that time where I was already doing what I was doing, but it it there were just certain things that were uh, legitimized. The whole concept of red point leaving quick draws in place. That was Mm. that wasn't something I did. That was
0: something I borrowed from European climbers showing up. Gotcha. So I want to come back to the summer of eighty five, but before that, while I'm thinking about it, so chain reaction, when you first did that in nineteen eighty three, you named it corner route number one. Corner number one. Corner number one. Yeah. So how did chain reaction get its name?
1: I hated naming routes. You have to name your routes.
0: You just do. It's kinda like Yeah, you, you know, you if you don't up, like naming you put routes. A lot of them.
1: <laughs> you just have to name your routes. Just like having kids. You have to name your kids. Even if you don't like naming things. You gotta you can't just have your you can't have kid number one and kid number two. You have to name things. And I don't even remember. I think I was looking through magazines and trying to there was no internet to try to figure out and some reason that name came to me just because that's the way that climb felt is it was a one move led into the next and it was at the time it seemed kind of like a radical thing where there was just it wasn't just a climb where you know you 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 couldn't stop and Mm. you just kind of had to keep moving every so anyway that's where that name kind of came from but it again i didn't I, i didn't like naming routes and i didn't that was not my thing there were always people at smith rock who had Never did routes, but had lots of route names. Always <laughs> think, oh, you should name it this, or you should name it that. And then there are people who do lots of routes, but have no names. Yeah. So I was definitely one who did lots of routes and had no names.
0: It's interesting with that one because it's it's really the perfect name for that route. A couple of years later, Hans Zack, a European photographer, gets some photos of you on that. And then that's really ultimately what causes Smith to, to blow up. And
1: Yeah, that's kind of what... It really did become a chain reaction, right?
0: Yeah, it, and it very much was. I
1: mean, by 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 that time, I mean, after 83, 84, there was just a period of time where you just, I mean, things went from, I don't know, from at the start of 1979, the hardest route at Smith Rock was 11B. By 85, it was 13D, hmm. which at that time was... You know, like when I did the East Face of Monkey Face. Well, Wolfgang Gulich, as it turns out, had done Punks in the Gym, 14A, -hmm. just a couple months before. Oh, wow. So that was actually, yeah, Punks in the Gym was actually the hardest route. But when I did the... And
0: is that in the Blue Mountains in Australia?
1: So it's in Arapiles. Arapiles. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, and um, I, I don't quote me on that. I'm not exactly sure, but it's a <laughs> very famous route. But yeah. yeah, that was the world standard at that point. Yeah, it was almost the before hardest before 85 world. was a 13D, 13CD. I mean, I grew up. Grand Illusion was always the hardest. That was the hardest route in the world. And uh, you know, and then real quickly it shifted, and there were starting to be a whole lot of harder routes. But yeah, there was a time when uh, you know, when, if you were climbing, getting close to 514, that was, that was the very highest level. Mm-hmm. But using the, t- the tactics we were using at Smith Rock, it, it went from where there were 511s to all of a sudden it was like world standard. Yeah. And when Heinz showed up, I mean, I, um, he was just kind of this guy. I, I was coming back up after a day of climbing. It was August and Mike Volk, who I um, still lives at Smith Rock. And he always kind of had the place where everybody camped. He lives right next to Smith Rock. And he was like, Alan, there's this guy. He's, he keeps asking for you. And I just felt I should warn you. He's up in the parking lot. And I was like, oh, God.
0: <laughs>
1: and this guy, he was just kind of this wild, his hair. He looked like he hadn't taken a shower in a month. I'm sure he hadn't. He was just this, you know, traveling and he was living in his car. And he was like, and I met him. And he's like, I've, you know, he said, I've come from Austria. I've come from Austria to take pictures of you. I was like, <laughs> uh, Okay, <laughs> but I talked with him long enough, and I eventually realized. I mean, we started talking, and, and I didn't even pay that much attention. To, he was just like this oddball guy, which I met occasionally these people who were kind of into what was going on there. Yeah. But then he said, "I, I was in. Um, I just was in Australia, and I was taking pictures of Wolfgang Gulich. Okay. And I was Okay. Like, oh, Wolfgang, because Wolfgang was always like the yeah the almighty. You know, <laughs> he, we knew he was out there. And it's like, huh. Wolfgang, you know Wolfgang? And I was like, I don't believe you know Wolfgang. And he's like, no, I know Wolfgang. And he showed me a t-shirt. He had a t-shirt that that has Wolf, had this picture of Wolfgang on it from a, a shop in Germany. Oh, wow. Like, no, this is his shirt. And it's like, whoa, okay. So I agreed to spend a day taking, you know, pictures. It was like, let's meet at five in the morning or 5.30. And hmm. so we... Took the pictures of chain reaction and then split image on the other side and East Face. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was wearing his wolf that Wolfgang shirt. Oh, no kidding? Yeah. I've never noticed that. Yeah, I'm wearing a yellow. At least on the cover the mountain cover shot, I was wearing this yellow shirt. He thought it would just look, you know, good with my tights I was wearing and uh. Uh-huh. So anyway, I didn't even think anything of it. We took the pictures. I was just kind of joking around with him. I said he said, do you want to take the shirt? And I was like, no, I'll tell you what, Heinz. If you really know Wolfgang, here's what I want you to do. And it was just kind of my like sense of humor. I was just saying, you take the shirt, you take it back to Germany, you get Wolfgang to sign it <laughs> and you send it back to me. <laughs> and I was just joking. Yeah. And then like four months later, back in Eugene and this package comes and it's a signed oh Wolfgang Gulich, the, his his shirt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Along with the copy of Mountain Magazine that I was on the cover of. Wow. And so that just all of a sudden, and, and it changed things just from where Smith Rock was nothing to where the next time I went out there within just a couple months, it was, I'd go out there and I'd realize, whoa, there's 50 climbers here. And I think I'm the only one speaking English. Wow. Yeah. Just overnight. Massive shift. Yeah. It was crazy.
0: Wow. So this video came out a few years ago that I really loved. It's called Pioneering Smith Rock. And it's a, a feature of about you and your early days at Smith, made by, I think, Hydro Flask.
1: Yeah. This um the guy that did it was Matt Kleiner. He, okay, is, and he was working with Hydro Flask. They it's a local company and yeah. they had kind of this.
0: They make program. water bottles and pine glasses yeah. and stuff.
1: And like that. so I don't even know how that exactly came. I think it was actually Marsha
0: Volk. Mike's wife who had a connection with them okay so well it's a great film and there's a quote from you in that film that I that really caught my interest and it was you're talking you were speaking about the summer of 1985 and you said it was a time I would go back if I could live a day I sure would so I'm curious what would a day in 1985 summer of 85 what would that look like (laughs) It was, it was pretty simple. And in a lot of ways, it was not very impressive.
1: (laughs) I was just living in a a tent. I had this big tent behind Mike Volk's property, like a walk-in tent. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I think I had finished going to Central Oregon Community College and I I was kind of at a transition and normally in the summer I'd go back and live at home. But it was the first summer where it's like, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm just going to live in a tent. And so I just lived in a tent. And I was kind of at the peak, I was probably at the peak of my climbing skills relative to the rest of the world. It was the oh, okay. time when I was I was closest to, um, you know, when I was pushing 514, when 514 was still not quite out there, you know, or it was like, yeah. that was the, the highest level.
0: Yeah. When did you do the first ascent of
1: East Face crack? Um, in 84, I did it, it was done in two pitches originally. Oh, okay. So in 83, I did the first pitch, which is like 12C. Yeah. And then I started working on the second pitch where you'd actually do it as a two-pitch climb. You'd do the first pitch, you'd have a hanging belay, you then do the upper pitch. Mm-hmm. And I did the upper pitch in 84, first yo-yo, and then I actually red-pointed it, putting in all the gear,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was, at that point, that, that doing that, doing just that pitch alone was harder than Grand Illusion. It just was, putting in the gear especially. And then the next year, I came back and did the both pitches together, which adds a bit in the difficulty, but not... Yeah. I don't think it adds a lot. Okay. So, yeah, 84 to 85. And I mean, that's a long... That's
0: a long route. Because if nothing it's, else, that's a lot of rope weight.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of... Yeah, and we were using 11-millimeter ropes. Yeah. And back then, when I was doing it, I wasn't pre-placing any gear. hmm I mean, I've read countless times different places it's like oh it was done with pre-placed gear it, it never i never pre-placed a single net not ever ever huh. i never left a quick draw in place ever because you couldn't do that yeah that was not okay but what i was dealing with was like having the rack put in the gear and then i would find that i i would clip the quick draws and i wouldn't have enough strength to pull the rope up so i started using these really long quick draws oh, so I'd wow. clip up, and they'd hang down to my waist and uh-huh. But I, it was, I was, I don't know, I should have just left a few draws or that sort of thing, but I just had my little way of how I was doing things. So Mm. anyway, I eventually did that and which isn't that, it's like a pegged out, it's a pin scar crack. It's not, it's not what we, it's not a
0: sport climb. It's a kind of a traditional climb. Is, Is the crux more face moves though?
1: Well, you you climb this pin-scarred crack really steep and then you have to do some face moves and then you are like making this kind of this weird barn door move over to a jam that is another pin-scar. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's kind of just a blasted it out. It's kind of like the end of the old era mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than the new era. But we were, you know, we were all trad climbers. There were no There were no sport climbers. We were all trad climbers. We were... I was a good trad climber. We were all good trad Todd Skitter. He was a really good trad climber. Yeah. Cuz there was no other option. You could be mm-hmm. a boulderer, but then you were a trad climber. You did cracks. Whether even if you didn't use traditional tactics, you climbed you climbed cracks. So there were no sport climbs, so we, you know, when I started doing sport climbs, I was a much better crack climber. I was mm-hmm. a really good crack climber. I was it took me a long time to figure out and I was a good boulderer. I mean, not like these days good, but I was climbing, I don't know, V10, V11, that yeah. sort of thing. I, w- I was decent back then. I was actually pretty good. Yeah. So I could do hard moves. I could, um, but to to have the endurance on a sport climb, and it was just a different thing to do like a to bolt or not to be, where it's, there's no move on it that's that hard, but the combination is tremendously hard. Mm-hmm. So that kind of came Came later. But yeah. yeah. So initially, all the best climbs I did, they were all crack climbs. Okay. The hardest climbs, the first 513 at Smith Rock was a crack climb.
0: I mean, everything what was, was just double stain. Oh, yeah. Did you place all the gear on lead on that? Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't tried it yet, but I've, I have this impression that it's either really dangerous or really unrealistic to place some of the gear because it's blind or reachy or yeah,
1: something. Yeah, there was a... Section, I don't remember. It's again, it's a pin scar crack. It's like this old school thing. But I, I remember there's this one place where you would put you would put a piece in like a RP, which I don't even think that company exists anymore. They were the first- We still call them that. Brass nuts. Yeah. You know, I think a number three. And, but it was very hard to put that piece in. And I would find that I couldn't put that piece in and continue, I'd always fall off. So eventually I figured out that you'd put the piece in and then you'd down climb. Oh. But it was still fairly hard getting up there. Yeah. I found that I had a sequence to put the piece in, and then I had a different sequence to use to climb down. Oh, wow. And it, I even fell off a couple times. Trying to I went, down climb. Yeah, on the down climb. Yeah. But eventually you'd down climb all the way, then you could just sit and you'd rest and then... All the way to the ground? That climb starts on uh, the top of combination blocks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you, yeah. you're just sitting on a big ledge. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's, again, that's just the way you did things back then.
0: Hmm. And then ultimately, you'd go on to climb, to bolt or not to be, you bolted that that route. Um, JB Troubault does the first ascent. When was that, in 87? Uh, November of 86 is when he did it. Okay.
1: And I started I was preparing that route, I think, two years before, I think in November of 84. Okay. And I had a journal back then where I actually kept track of everything I was doing. And, and I was surprised. I looked at that a couple years ago and I, I I spent seven days where it'd be like, each day I'd list what I would do and it would, uh, you know, repel of sunshine wall and then repel sunshine wall. And there were seven days where I started I was cleaning it and kind of figuring out where the route would
0: go. Mm. I mean, now it That makes obvious. sense. It's, well, yeah. It's, so you're it just like pulling it, off
1: these flakes
0: and it seemed impossible. And, yeah. And you started cr- It's all side thing. poles and underclings and... Yeah. And it really, that route really wanders back and forth across that wa- whole wall. Yeah.
1: And really when I first wrapped down it, it was like just a lot of loose flakes. Just wow. Just little flakes. And so I just pulled off all these little flakes and I, you piece together this thing and then I... And after, I think, seven days, I have an entry where I said, sunshine wall, top rope, did all the moves. Okay. So I, you know, at least I knew it was maybe
0: possible. Mm-hmm. But, did, uh, did you start
1: working on it at that point? Well, or? I, I kind of did, but it was, I just, it was, that was just too much. I mean, that was early 84. I mean, that if, if I had done it, that, that was, that was... It
0: would have been the hardest route in the
1: world. Yeah, by far. That yeah. would have, and so it just, we, I just, we weren't quite ready. And I was a... I was a better crack climber. I was Mm. a much better crack climber. And I just wasn't good enough. And the footwear wasn't very good back then. The shoes we were wearing sucked. And so I just, I mean, I tried it some and it was always something I thought that maybe would be out there. And I actually split it up into two sections. I started working on the upper half of it where you climb up sunshine dahedral and then you'd clip You'd, you'd step left. Yeah, the French Connection. The French Connection.
0: The 13B. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But when I was doing it, at that point I was, I knew as I started to get better and climb more, I was aware of the criticism I was receiving in mm-hmm. the style that I was doing and that, you know, putting bolts in a rappel, hang dogging, it's like anybody can do that. That's nothing. That's cheating. Mm. And so I started to, for two reasons. One, I started putting in fewer bolts, partly because Everything was hand drilled. Right. And and I only had like one or two bits back then. And I didn't I just didn't even know how to sharpen them or if I could. Or I just so I I'd put in like a hundred bolts with one bit and it would just it would take an hour per hole. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was horrible trying to hand drill the stuff. And so if I could put in fewer bolts by using natural gear or just being a little bit bold, I'd put in fewer bolts because it would save me a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so when I first started working on French connection, you'd step over, clip what is now the ninth bolt of to bolt or not to be, but the tenth bolt wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> and the 14th bolt wasn't there. Okay. So you you'd have to do, I mean, you'd be like the, you, the rope would just like snake down below your feet, and, you know, it'd be like 20 feet down below where the bolt was. And, yeah. And it was just really hard to get myself up for trying this thing. Yeah, that was you know as hard of a face climb as I could do. Yeah, at that point, thirteen B or something, where the where you were taking forty forty footers. forty plus footers.
0: Yeah, that's not exactly like vacation bolted now, even with those extra
1: bolts. It's still kind of run out. (laughs) Well, yeah, like yeah, it's it definitely is, and so in '86 when Jean Baptiste did it, he. He real quickly just looked at it and it's like, Oh, well, you need a bolt there, and you need a bolt there. And so he added mm. the bolts and he looked at it more from a European, like not looking at it from a US standpoint of where you were under tremendous criticism for doing this. Got it. It's like, no, it doesn't it's silly, it's just put the bolts in. Uh-huh. You know. So anyway, that's yeah, he he did that in eighty six. I'd met him in um at a climbing competition in uh in the Pyrenees. Okay. And people knew at that point what Smith Rock was from the magazines and the articles. And they knew who I was because of those articles. And I met him and I was saying, yeah, you should come to Smith Rock. And he was like, oh, he said, I've already got tickets. (laughs) (laughs) I've already bought a ticket to, you know, my friend and my girlfriend were coming to the month of October. Oh, wow. He was the first, he was the first one ever to buy the round trip Paris to Redmond, Oregon, back to Paris round trip. That was his trip. He didn't go anywhere else. Oh man. Yeah. And so anyway, he came to Smith Rock, did the routes and that kind of changed everything. It legitimized what I was doing, but it also took it up a notch. And Hmm. for me, it was great because you could criticize what I was doing But once this other, this guy shows up from Europe and does something that is just, there's a big difference between to bolt or not to be and some of the other, you know, darkness at noon, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference. And it became really hard for people to argue with to bolt or not to be. Got it. Look at this style. Look at the way of doing it. This is what happens. If you hang dog, you bolt on repel, this is possible. Mm. If you are... No hang dogging, lowering to the ground. Yeah, you guys, you can be doing 13A or 13B or whatever. And, but if you really wanna be doing the best, the hardest stuff, either this way or just you're getting left behind. Hmm. And that's the whole reason for his name to bolt or not to be. Either you bolt it or it's not even. Hmm. You step into the future or you're left behind.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way it was. That was the turning point. So 1985, you've done the first ascent of East Space Crack, and arguably you're one of the best climbers in the country at the time. In my mind, you're one of the best climbers in the world at the time. And it's my, my understanding, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but you were climbing five days a week. That was working really well for you. So you thought, oh, what if I climb six days a week? What if I climb seven days a week? Eventually you're climbing every day, getting really strong. Jeff Smoot in his book, he he talks about when he was meeting you, uh, you were popping ibuprofen like candy and already having some arthritis and issues with your hands. And I have a quote from you. You said, "I, I basically destroyed myself.
1: Yeah, it's accurate.
0: When we were, we went to lunch a few weeks ago in preparation for doing this and you said something really interesting. You said it was like, I found the goose that laid the golden eggs and I killed the goose. That's exactly what I did, yeah,
1: it was um I don't know, it was stupid of me, but then again, I look back and it was um it was just my path. it was just what I kind of needed to do it, it's It's kind of like i if I wouldn't have been as consumed with what I did, if I would have been slower paced and done those same things three or four years later, it wouldn't have mattered because it would have happened elsewhere. hmm it was like, it was just this opportunity and I saw it and I seized it and nobody was ever telling me, slow down.
0: Hmm.
1: I was obsessive, tremendously obsessive. I mean, kind of, you know, borderline mental health, sort of like OCD, you know, just simply, this is my goal. This is my vision. I must, I must do it. I must Mm -hmm. do whatever I have to do. It's all that existed. My world was super simple. So, yeah, I just, uh, that's totally right. I started climbing four days a week and five days a week and six days a week and, and then training and bouldering and, and the start of 85, I mean, 84 had been tremendously successful. I mean, in two years I'd gone from like doing the first sport climb to, to like pushing 514. It was like, I felt like I was on top of the world, tremendously confident. And so what am I going to do in 85? I'm. Hey, let's climb every day. Hmm. Let's do 365 days. Let's do every day, climb every day. Did you? Well, you... I made it about halfway. Okay. Yeah. And I had a period of time when I was super strong. I was, I probably did the hardest boulder problems I've ever done. And I my, I was, I mean, my fingers were strong. I was even probably fairly strong by today's standards. Yeah, I... but then I started not being so strong. I started feeling like, Ugh, I'm just kind of feeling a little weak today. Hmm. After maybe day 60. (laughs) And then after day 90, I was, it was more of a problem. And once I hit day 125, it was, um, okay, well, eventually I realized this isn't going to work. I need to take one day off. (laughs) So I took a day off. (laughs) And then I wasn't any better. I wasn't any stronger. And, you know, I did come back and I actually did my hardest climbing after that. But you can't do that. You can't climb. Doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're a runner, if you're whatever, if you you push your body and you rest your body, and when mm. you're resting, your body grows stronger. It, it, it you damage your body, mm-hmm. and it is in the rest period that your body then grows stronger. Yeah. And I ignored that. When my body wanted to grow stronger, I was back out mm. climbing crimping stuff, pin scars, little one finger jams, horrible torquing things. And I, I mean, in, in 1985, I, in a lot of ways did some of my best climbing, but I kind of sealed my fate for the future. It was, hmm. I never, I never recovered. Even though I did harder routes, I did 514 in 1988 and 89, and um, I never recovered. And I hmm. still it doesn't matter. I still have the same issues, the exact same issues that took me out then. I still have them. Oh, I go to wow. the gym. I have joints that will become inflamed. They'll become red. They're just, they feel like they're infected. I mean, it's, I have like this, i it's accurate. I destroyed myself. It's it's too bad that I did that. I wish I wouldn't have. I should have had a longer uh, career. Mm. But um, again, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining with just the way it went for me it was just that was my path
0: yeah it's really interesting to hear you say that i mean you seem really self actualized and you've seen that you know you've seen what happened from that path and and how much of an impact you've had um obviously at the same time it's still tragic it's still a, a hard story so I, i'm curious would you would you take it back would you do anything differently
1: Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I think I would have asked occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would take a day off. I think occasionally I would just take a day off. There was no benefit. It wasn't like, I mean, it was just the way it was. And in some ways for me at this point to say, poor me, oh, it's really too bad what happened to me. My fingers went and, you know, and, and I couldn't climb harder. I had a short career or I am so grateful, like just, unbelievably wonderfully grateful for every experience i had i mean i got to i was a kid i had like these dreams of wanting to be a climber and what happened to me was beyond what i ever would imagine and the fact Mm -hmm. that we're here years later decades later i mean people it's still it will follow me my whole life i mean when i'm finally gone you know that's what my obituary is going to say. It's definitely <laughs> going to mention Alan Watts, rock climber, Smith Rock. And yeah, um, it was the best thing I ever did. Hmm. And so it's, I uh, would be really petty of me to look at it and complain. But yeah, I mean, I made, I made mistakes, but um, so what? I mean, I did, I didn't know better. Hmm. Certainly, what I was doing with sport climbing kind of inspired other people in the U.S. to do that push, you know, like a Boone Speed, for instance, going to American Fork and doing what he did. And mm. Just, it, it was kind of the beginning. But it also, I hope that uh, people knew my story and were kind of smarter. Than I was. <laughs> and you, everybody, climbers tend to be pretty obsessive. Uh, it's yeah. not unusual. It's not, you have something, you have a goal, you want to do it. And it's really hard to understand that the best thing to do to achieve your goal is occasionally to do nothing Mm. climbers benefited from uh, in this country from realizing okay well i don't want to take a rest day but i should take a rest day because i don't want to have fingers that are swollen and red and Puffy, looking like Alan's.
0: <laughs> you describe that when you go to the climbing gym. Now, the day after, all your wrinkles on your hands are gone because your fingers yeah. are so swollen. And it's still that way. I've I've tried. Didn't matter.
1: Losing weight. It didn't. Doesn't matter if I train. It's it's the pattern. It always is that way. I just simply I'll feel really strong if I start doing too much. If I don't give myself enough recovery time, and I need massive recovery now, um, it just what happens? I just notice that they are puffy and they're red and they just, you know, I don't know, it's arthritis or whatever it is, but I, yeah, I I have limitations. Mm -hmm. But I also, if I am smart, it used to be when it first happened, it was like, okay, it's over. I can't climb anymore. It's done. And I certainly couldn't push the standards, but as it turns out, I can be a really pretty decent two-day-a-week climber. Mm. that's what I am I can't be more than that mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast that that Bill Ramsey did and he he was talking about his training and Bill's like well he's my exact age to the day and he he um, was talking about how with his training he has these massive training days yeah and for him it's it's not that less is more he said more is more <laughs> and I mean Bill's a whole different you know thing a whole different a creature than I am, but um, but it's really true. I can have a day where I train, I climb, I can do a lot, but then I need several days, probably three days, mm. of complete rest. At least with my fingers, I can do other things, but and then I can have another really massive day of climbing, training, whatever. Oh, interesting. If I try to go more than that, I break down. I just do. I always do. That's just. All I can sustain.
0: And you've tried more frequent but much shorter days? Like
1: there's nothing else works. I've tried yeah. it for
0: years. Okay. I, I mean when yeah, I Yeah, that's interesting. When
1: I started breaking down, I tried everything. I mean, it was it was horrendous for me. It was it was really a very bad time for me in my life because I I had found what I wanted to be. It had worked out. Hmm. I don't know. It's like we all want to be, you know, we're climbers and climbing is important to us and we want to do our routes. And then I, it was just kind of coincidentally that I, you know, climbed and did my routes. And then also it was kind of started this whole different movement and this whole different part of segment of climbing. And that wasn't what I set out to do. It's wonderful. And it's, it's been pretty cool, but, um, you know, that wasn't what I set out to do. But once I, um, once it was obvious it was working, people started showing up. Smith Rock was like this internationally known area. I was already on the decline. I was already injured I was, mm. and it got worse really quickly. And so for me, it was like, okay, great. I just achieved everything I ever dreamed of more than I ever dreamed of. And now I can't participate. Mm-hmm. And that was really disorienting and kind of horrible for me. Yeah. So it took a very long time. You mentioned how I might seem self-actualized now. Well, I sure wasn't. That was a lot of angst and a lot of years when I was tormented. Mm -hmm. And I've only kind of in recent years kind of come to where I am satisfied and accepting of what my path was.
0: Mm -hmm. So I would love to talk to you about Adam Andra and his visit here. So after your, you, you just talked about your decline, how as, as soon as Smith Rock really took off and all these international climbers started showing interest and it starts blowing up against your will you're kind of pulled away from it and forced out of it and uh, my understanding is that you you took a pretty significant step back from climbing for a long time and then only just recently you became interested in, in kind of what was happening with the climbing scene again you discover Adam Andra and then sh- you know sure enough he's on his way to Smith Rock tell me about how climbing kind of came back onto your radar and maybe how you came across Adam Andra. And then you had a great story about him uh, visiting here and and you going out and meeting him once he was here.
1: Yeah. Once I, um, I don't know, by the early nineties, I was in my early thirties. I was having major issues with my fingers. They just weren't working. The first joint, the joint closest to my, the tips, Mm -hmm. I forget what it's called, uh, a dip joint or
0: I, yeah, I can't remember if it's the PIP joint. Or it the might DIP. be a pip or a dip. I I don't pip know.
1: But I would just they they you know sharp excruciating like almost an electrical like pain where mm. I would I would be climbing and you couldn't force yourself to hang on. It just it didn't work. And at that point, I was gotten married. My son was born in 1993. The same week my son was born, I took over as president of Entreprise USA. Oh, I didn't a know company that. company that I had founded along with Chris Grover. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. Do you know that I worked there when I first booted? No, down? I didn't know. I worked there for a year and a half. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I managed their whole climbing hold production. Yeah,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I I mean you'd think they would have put a statue up of <laughs> me or Chris, but we didn't yeah, we they haven't done that. So
0: I don't think there were that many climbers there when I worked there. I was kinda disoriented. Yeah, it's like, kind of Isn't a, this a climbing company? It's kind of a funny thing. But
1: so anyway, you know, between everything I'd done in climbing, having a son, working in the industry burnt out. I was just done. And I also was kind of done from the, um, I didn't like the whole battle between sport climbers and traditional climbers. And Mm. it took a toll on me. It just wasn't fun. I didn't like it. I like to get along with people. I don't like conflict. I hate conflict. And so suddenly I was just found myself in this position where I was always just the the new person who was pushing against tradition
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and um, I don't know. It just, it, it stopped being fun Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, partly because it hurt and I just couldn't do it. But also it just, after five years or six years or eight years, I didn't want to argue with people. You know, like, hey, you know, you, you, you sport climbers, you, that's not sport climbing, it's not climbing. And, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. I just, I'm done. I don't want to hear that argument anymore. I'm just done. And so, yeah, I, when I quit, I really quit. And especially in the uh, 2000s, my son was a, a competitive snowboarder and I, I was following him around the world and, and I didn't need it. It was, I was glad I lived those years, but they were done. Mm-hmm. I went. I don't know, 15 years, I never picked up a climbing magazine. Hmm. Occasionally somebody would say, hey, there's an article, you're in it, you should, you know, and I'd get it and I'd put it in my box of stuff and I, but I just, I just didn't care. I wasn't interested in it. And, and I don't know, it was, um, I've always stayed in touch with, with Bill Ramsey who, you know, just kept on, he just kept on getting better. As he was getting better, I just was declining. (laughs) And so, but we, he would come here and he'd, um, every once in a while we'd go out to eat and have a few beers and he would just be talking about all this stuff. And I'm sure, you know, what was going on. And I'm sure that's where I heard of Adam Andre. Mm. It wasn't from the magazines or wasn't anything I searched online. Okay. I'm sure the first time Bill mentioned his name, I was like, who? He's like, he's the best climber in the world. Who is he? <laughs> you know, this guy from the Czech Republic. And it was the same time when I was starting to do the, alternate day fasting thing and i was losing weight and i was starting to think you know my kids were older and it's like you know i miss it i miss climbing and Hmm. i want to get back into it and so i found myself starting to pay attention and go on the internet and look at things and i went to some real rock i went to a real rock movie for the first time and it's like wow i mean not just enjoying the movie, but more than anything else, just being amazed that I'm sitting in a theater of people filled with climbers all wanting to see a climbing movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. In the, you know, 19 early 80s, if they would have had a movie for a climbing movie, there would have been 15 of us showing up to see it because that's all the only, those are the only people that climbed.
0: Yeah. Oh, fascinating. So
1: I kind of just, it was kind of cool to just be away for 15 years, like Hmm. completely away. Like just you couldn't get further or removed from it. And I, I hardly ever thought about it. And then just all of a sudden back into it, like this is the new world and kind of educating myself. And mm-hmm. it's like It was, um, yeah, it was kind of fascinating. And I mean, of course, Adam is, you can't, if you pay attention to climbing real quickly, you know Adam Andre. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until um, I had my hip replaced, October 1st, 2018. I had a hip that was going bad, my right hip. And I was getting to where I was just having things that were going wrong with my body. Mm. Like I'd had, I started trying to get it back in shape after I'd lost all the weight in 2013. I was back in the 140, you know, 148 pounds and ready to be a climber again. And then I tore my rotator cuff and a year later I had surgery. And then a year later, it took a year before I could start climbing. And and then as I started climbing again, then I noticed, gosh, my hip is hurting. And real quickly, it was like, I can't really walk and I can't sleep. And so I had to have my, had my hip replaced. I actually had it resurfaced. I had it done in Seattle. So, But it was kind of a major thing. and But at that point, I was kind of following what was going on in climbing. And somehow I had heard that Adam Andra was in the U.S. and that he might be coming to Smith Rock. Yeah. And so it would be, It had been like three weeks after my hip surgery and I was just shuffling around the house with using my walker and just suffering, feeling like life was over. And I started just Googling Adam Andra and it was a Facebook, a public Facebook page. And I just started looking to see, I wonder if he's really coming to Smith Rock. And, and maybe a week later... And again, at that point, I had just, I had graduated from my walker to walking poles, but I hadn't <laughs> done nothing more than walk around the block uh-huh. at my house. And um, and one morning I woke up and I Googled his name and came up and there was a picture of him like sitting out in the trees. And it's like, whoa, that looks like Mount Jefferson behind him Yeah, and it's like, oh my God, he's here. So I just, I grabbed my walking sticks drive to Smith rock and I went down, down to the dehedrals and just in search of Adam. And um, (laughs) which for me, it was epic just walking down there. Cause I, I just, it's the first time I'd ever, again, had done more than walking around the block. And, but I figured, you know, this is, if he's coming to Smith rock, it's worth it to meet this guy. Hmm. And I am not somebody ever who will go up to somebody and I don't want to introduce myself or want to be like, I I dreaded having to say, um, hello, Adam. My name is Alan Watts. Perhaps you've heard of me. Uh, (laughs) I just didn't want to do that. Except it was Adam freaking Andre. You had to, it was either this, I either meet the guy or I don't. And so that's exactly what I did. I was like, hello, uh, Adam, uh, <laughs> my name's Alan Watson. I did some early development here at Smith Rock, and I just wanted to say welcome to this place, and we will you know anything we can do for you to make hmm. your stay more pleasant, <laughs> you know that sort of thing. but the but he was like, "Oh, well, I know you, you know and 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 we just hit it off and and um so we spent three days just I followed him around, shuffling around as well as I could. And later on, that you know, he tried he tried to do to Boulder not to be on site, and he fell off, and and he did Scarface on site and White Wedding on site, and it was just Bad Man, and yeah, and then well, he, the day he did just do it, mm-hmm. yeah, he hiked up the gully, he did Bad Man on site as a warm up, yeah, that was just his warm up, and he climbed both the cruxes backwards, did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: and, <laughs> and then he called it soft,
1: <laughs> yeah, and he was. Um, and it was a cold day. It was just windy. It, and yeah, it, and was. it was. like man, I just didn't think there's any way he was gonna try that hmm. thing on that day. Just do it. And
0: it but, was freezing back there. Yeah. I I had was so fortunate to be back there. And yeah, it was freezing in the shade, super windy. I felt the same thing. I was like, I, I couldn't even climb a warm-up right now. I don't know how he's going for it. Yeah. So I I, you know, I just met the guy, and then there was like this, my daughter was like,
1: Look at this post. And it was like cause I'm not on social media yeah. and he he actually posted this thing, which is like at Smith rock and met Alan Watts and it was such an honor. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> and I mean, I, I, it, it, it really meant a lot to me, especially because I was just at this point where I was recovering from this surgery mm. and I just felt really out of it. And like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever come back to do anything like, you know, hiking, let alone climbing. And, but just to suddenly just be transported to the absolute best of the best and, and realize he's just like me. He's just a kid who's, you know, he was just uh, psyched on climbing. He's just like, that's, it's like 30 years later, 35 years later, he's just who I was just, you know, at Smith rock, just somebody who was just in love with climbing. Hmm. And I watched him on, and just do it. And I, I mean, I was rooting for him for sure. And, um, but I didn't think he was gonna do it. There's mm-hmm. no way. Cause it's just, I mean, it's just do it. And the best descent had taken like four days Yeah, and it was cold. It was windy. It was all you need, you know, the lower parts really hard and there's a really hard move. And yeah, it, it's really all you tricky. have to do is have your foot pop or, you know, and then he, he just kept going and, you know, made it through the lower part. And he was stopping, you know, shaking at the midway rest. And it's like, whoa, this is interesting. <laughs> and just watching him, he just kept going, just ah, ah, every move. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. It was like the most, in, you know, 45 years as being a climber is the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Hmm. And partly because I'd been away for so long to just see like what climbing had become. Hmm. It just blew me away. And by the time he finally clipped the chains, I mean, I was like just it was like a sporting event, yes, you know, it was like where it was like it was just like a sporting event where you know somebody makes the last second shot to win the game in the uh-huh. basketball game, and that's the way you hear people screaming all around there were all these people watching you were, I guess you were there, so yeah, you were one of them, yeah, yeah, one of the people screaming there, and it was. And I was like, just, I was like in tears. I was, you know, I was, it was just, I was blown away. And, um, and then he had his film crew there and his, mm-hmm. you know, they were doing all their things. And the guy was filming me and asking me questions. And and then there, he posted something like on, he has these whole videos. It was like the start of his Road to Tokyo series, and, mm-hmm. which I, you know, that was like some of the first ones. And
0: yeah, he had like a whole America road trip yeah, series. Yeah,
1: right. And I watched the videos, and I looked at comments, and there was somebody who said like, "Oh, Alan Watts looks like he's in tears," or he was really <laughs> kind of upset that Adam did his route. <laughs>
0: it's like, are you kidding me? It's just I'm. I was just no. Inspired. You, look, you looked inspired and shell shocked and yeah, just like amazed, and, just, and it was amazing. Again, just
1: grateful because I had just mm. seen, you know, I was 15 years old climbing monkey face for the first time. And I I'd seen what everything that climbing had gone through and my life had gone through and what the sport had gone through. And it was just to see it. I mean, I recognized, I mean, I bolted that route in 1989 and mm-hmm. it was like, even though I could, I mean, what he was doing was so far beyond what I could even imagine. There was still this realization that, that I was part of what he was doing, Hmm. you know? And that I, what I had done back in the eighties, somehow through this coincidence, this butterfly effect led to this guy showing up and doing what he was doing. And it was just, for me, it was just kind of overwhelming. Yeah. So.
0: You have a quote from that. You said, uh, during that ascent, it's just like you watch your whole life.
1: Yeah. And I still kind of get choked up even, Talking about that because it's more than just watching this guy do a hard route. Because mm-hmm. I kind of relived the whole process of just everything from, you know, bolting on repel and hang dogging and, well, you're cheating and, and just everything that kind of led to all of a sudden where you have the, you know, the end result of that is, is people that are just unimaginably good. Mm. So I, I really hit it off with Adam. It was fun and we just, it was fun. I, he's just, he was like my son. He's like, he's the same age as my son. Mm-hmm. And again, the fact that he put me in his videos or put me in his book or whatever was was, yeah, so I you, was just grateful.
0: Like, what the hell? <laughs> I know. I know you expressed this to me. We were at lunch a few weeks ago and you showed me this Instagram post. And after he left, you had uh, kind of stumbled onto this. Adam just came out with a photo book and you were looking at that on his Instagram post. And all of a sudden, you know, he's flipping through the book on this video and there you are. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And again, which you just, and I saw that and I I was kind of amazed, like, why would I make the cut? How would I make (laughs) it into his book? And then I started looking like, how can I get a copy? I want to get a copy of the book. Yeah. And it wasn't available in the US. And as it turns out, my wife was looking for a copy because I had told her about it and she was looking at a copy for Christmas and we both just kind of struck out. Uh And it's like, oh, well, you know, no big deal. And then like a few days later, I get an email from Adam Andra's team manager saying, hey, Adam really wants to get you a copy of his book.
0: No kidding. Yeah. Oh my god. So gosh. I gave him the
1: address, you know, sends me the book and I don't know. It's again, it's just things like that that are just um grateful, gratitude. Mm. That's my thing. If I look back at my years of climbing, that's it. It's just, yeah, it's, it's the best, the best thing. So that ever happened to me.
0: Hmm. It was really interesting in that video series to watch you kind of hanging out with Adam and, and beyond just do it, going on and trying the all project. We were talking about that. So Adam was trying a project on a feature called the all A W L. And you had bolted this line back in. I think 1990, uh, 1990. And it's, I mean, Adam was thinking it's going to be 14D, but he didn't do it despite 10 tries or something in a day with really good conditions. So it might even be harder. It was fascinating to hear your perspective. You were telling me about being out there that day and watching him do this. And there was this moment where he realized that he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, the sun, it was, the thing was
1: in the shade. The Uh conditions were perfect. And then his, I mean, he had just done... You know, the day before he had just on-sided, bad man, just do it and uh spank the monkey. You know, the, oh. and you know he. Oh, was, did he do that as well? He actually fell off of the full full spank. Oh, okay, his foot just. I mean, he was totally in control. He was right up at the top, and his foot was in a pocket, and he was reaching up, and his foot just popped. Oh so,
0: man! Yeah.
1: So I mean, that for him was. I don't think thirteen D was that yeah at heart he just did it like half an hour after lowering off of just do it uh-huh. but then the next day he's trying this project because i told him about it mm-hmm. and um his skin wasn't good he was tired but still i mean he's adam Andra and um he was working on it and kept trying he was really close like okay he'll do this and then you started to see he kept falling off on the same move over and over and the sun was coming over, his skin was bad, and it was getting a little warm, and you, you know, there got to be a point where it was like, he's not gonna do it. Mm. And he realized that, and the, he had one attempt where he was up there, fell off on the, the last hard move, and he's just this really mild-mannered, super nice, unassuming person. And all of a sudden he was just like, I do not want to fail. And just, you could just tensing all of his muscles. And then he just returned to his nice person that he was just (sighs) real calm, oh, well, you know, I'll come back. And But you just, the intensity, you saw Mm. the intensity of what makes him who he is. Mm. So again, good memory.
0: That's fascinating. I'm really fascinated that you bolted that in 1990. I mean, there's a there's a quote from Adam, I think in that same video, and he's talking about just how brave you were for bolting that when you did. And there's also, there's an open project, I believe on the left of Scarface on that sweeping overhanging wall. And it's a beautiful feature, but you know, Adam's just guessing. I don't think he tried it, but he's like, yeah, this thing's gonna be 515, maybe 515 plus. It's fascinating to me. I, I would love to know what was it that led you to bolt those things? Were you just the optimist? Did you just want to see for yourself and think you might have a chance of climbing these things? Did you have any sense of how futuristic those climbs might be? Well, I mean, if you look back and put it into context,
1: in 1979, when I was 18 years old, the hardest route at Smith Rock was like 511 A, maybe B. Move ahead seven years, and the hardest route at Smith Rock is 514 A, So what's that? That's like, you know, it's hard to do the math, but it's like, what, 12, 13, 14 grades? And (laughs) so it's it's really easy to, you know, we've had that success. And so once you went from 5'11 to 5'14 and anything seemed possible, Hmm. there was no reason to think that five, uh, you know, 5.14 had arrived. 5.15 was going to be coming real soon. 5.16, no doubt. 5.17, 5.18, it was all coming. Huh. And we were kind of wrong. We were overly optimistic, <laughs> but there was this belief that you bolted. And by the time I did the all project and when I bolted just do it in 1989, I was beginning to realize I, I wasn't the one that was going to be doing these routes. Hmm but I still thought maybe I could, but I was starting to break down. I was having my f- issues with my fingers. I don't think I would have bolted just do it, for instance, if I, I didn't bolt it thinking, oh, well, this would be a really nice service for me to bolt this so that Jean-Baptiste Tribout can show up in 1992 and do it. Yeah. It was, no, I bolted it because I wanted to do it. Yeah. I actually bolted that for a TV show that we were Oh, okay. Huh. Um, Yeah. It was on NBC Sports World, and they wanted to do a show on um, doing the hardest route at Smith Rock. And okay. So it was a program where Wolfgang Gulich, Ron Kalk, and I teamed together to do this route.
0: Oh, no way. Yeah. And
1: <laughs> I, my job was to pick the route and to bolt the route and prepare it. So then we'd show up. You nailed it. We do the first good, set. Man. So I bolted. Yeah, I bolted. <laughs> just do it. Uh-huh. And then the day before Wolfgang flew in, Kalk and I tried it. Uh uh-huh. um, and <laughs> we had like two days to climb once the film crew showed up we had two days to climb the thing and real quickly we realized oops <laughs> <laughs> this isn't gonna work we're not gonna because in 1989 14c that that was there's nothing again it was harder than anything that had been done and um so we, we ended up changing our plans and doing something else and again it was a good memory climbing with those guys and um I just was looking at different routes and that, that thing on the all, it's, it wasn't a, it's just this short little thing, but mm-hmm. I wasn't the only one. Scott Franklin was the one that bolted the thing left of Scarface. Oh, really? Yeah, it okay. wasn't me. And um, yeah, there was just this belief that, again, if you think about it, when we've gone from 5.11 to 5.14, or even in just in the US from like 5.13 up into 5.14, well, 5.15 was obviously coming mm. and there was a lot of excitement and... Hmm. Yeah, so total belief that those things would be done soon. Hmm. So when I bolted that thing on the all, it was not, I wasn't bolting it for Adam Andra to try 30 years later. Uh I was bolting it for, hopefully I'd be able to do it in a year or two, or if not, somebody would do it in the next few years. And then they just, it just sat. It was just abandoned. Yeah. And I'm glad. I mean, I guess what's cool looking back is that I... Saw it, could feel the holds, and decided this will go, hmm. and not chopping the holds, mm-hmm. chipping it to to where because it would have been really easy to chip the thing down to thirteen C. Yeah, you know, and or fourteen A or whatever, and have it be done. But it uh-huh. was like you could just kind of see that this would this would go. Huh. So yeah, it's still not done. It's still sitting there. I'm waiting for. <laughs> Adam said he was. Um, you know, when I thanked him for sending the book, he sent me back an email saying, "Yeah, I still need to go to Smith Rock, and
0: I'll come back. I still ha- want to do that project." He's and, one of those guys, you know. That's that's in there. Yeah, that's in the in his mind. Yeah, because for him, that's not. Yeah, that's not a very hard thing. I know Drew's been trying it quite a bit too.
1: He had tried it. To, to, yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be nice if if Smith Rock had a five fifteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a little surprising that. Just do it was done in 92. Mm-hmm. And Drew did the assassin whenever, I don't know when that was, maybe 2016 three, or yeah, 17 three, four or, years ago. Yeah, at 514D. Yeah, And that's the hardest route at Smith. So we went from 511 in 79 to 14C in 92, that's mm-hmm. 13 years. And in the next 20 years, 28 years since then, it's gone up one notch yeah so and we it's getting harder to raise the standards but worldwide fifteen five fifteen 515 a is not mm. there's a lot of people that have done that it's not mm-hmm. i can't imagine it but it's like it's not that hard of a grade so it'd be really nice if there was a 515 at smith rock
0: hmm. yeah it must be interesting to come back into to rock climbing after so long away and i'm sure on one hand you're amazed at where things are now but were you also surprised that things hadn't come further in the in the years that you'd been away from the sport? Um, overall, worldwide, no. Okay, <laughs> I was blown away how far
1: things have come. Okay, at Smith Rock, yeah, got it. Kind of surprised. Yes, yeah. um, and I still am. I'm still I'm still surprised that again. If you think about that in in thirteen years, it goes from five eleven A to fourteen C, mm-hmm. and then in twenty eight years it goes from 14C to 14D. So, yeah, that's a little surprising and maybe a little disappointing that right. it wouldn't go higher. But people, it's not like every, it's, people don't care about that. It's like, you know, the the best climbers are on the World Cup and, you know, they're, they're trying to make, the, they're on the Olympic path or... You know they're going to Europe and doing the best U.S. climbers, and nobody's thinking, "Oh, well, I, I want to go to Smith Rock and uh, push standards." Push standards there; those days are are done. Hmm. That, it had its time, and those days are are done. It's more of a historical a place with a lot of history rather than a place that's re- relevant now. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's just the way things go. But still, it will be another point, another time that I'm looking forward to is when there is that jump forward in grades that will be cool when that happens hmm.
0: you've talked about your visualization you said that you used to visualize before that was what you were supposed to do so tell me about how you use visualization when you were projecting. well it, it, it
1: just kind of made sense it wasn't again a lot of the stuff sport climbing really became was just using every tactic available to get better, to uh-huh. improve, to get, to do your route. And so I would, when I started working on routes that were too hard for me to do quickly, I would memorize the moves and I'd go home and at night I would draw a very detailed map of every hand placement and every, it, the whole sequence. I had a whole map thing that I've, I've just diagrammed countless routes that way. Mm-hmm. And I got pretty, pretty good at memorizing things because that's, it's, really important very quickly. Once you, if you're going to do a hard route, you can't be stumbling through the lower part below the crux inefficiently uh, doing the wrong sequence and doing something different every time. It helps just to remember it. So you remember the moves. And once you remember the moves, then I would think about it and it's like, okay, I remember this sequence and you just start working through it. And Quickly, that kind of evolved to where I'd find myself laying down on my floor and doing every move of no kidding uh, to bolt or not to be or yeah. Scarface. And I would just imagine, or any new route I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, before I was doing those routes, I was that's, that's what I was doing. I would just visualize exactly everything, every little. Detail. Were you, you pantomiming know. the movements as well while you were doing these? Yeah, these are movements, but everything. Like okay. the The sounds, the the temperature, the no light, kidding. The, yeah, every the more detail, the better.
0: Yeah. And how you were so, feeling, how you're breathing. The yeah. So I would hormones. try a
1: route, and I'd get it kind of memorized, and it's like this is incredibly hard, and then I would try to visualize it and I'd lay down on the floor and it's like, okay, here I am going this move, you know, boom, 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 going through the sequence. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because there'd be routes that would be I wouldn't quite be ready to do. And I would find that as I was visualizing it, visualizing it, I kept falling off. (laughs) It's like, damn, you know, I'm just but it's like you're just (laughs) in your mind, but still in my mind I couldn't grasp doing it yet. Uh And then I would keep doing that over and over and I'd go back on the route and I'd work on it. And eventually I could get to where I could visualize it and actually make the move. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. It, you does, can, it does. Visualizing, it works to a point, but you know, what good does it do to imagine yourself? Does it help to visualize yourself climbing up a 20 foot section of sheet rock mm. with no holds? You right. know, it's floating up it. Well, no, that doesn't do you any good. so you have to, it actually has to be practical. You actually need to be able to do it. And, um, but yeah, once you start believing in it, yeah, for me, it was a big, it, it was huge. It, it actually made a, a difference. And I think it was mm. before people were really doing that. Mm-hmm. You couldn't visualize very easily if hang-dogging was not okay mm. and you had to lower off after each fall. Sure. How could you visualize what was gonna come next? Yeah. So it was just, again, just this rehearsal thing. Mm and i still do it i go to the gym and i you know i'm bumbling along on some route and i'll make a little map and i'm yeah visualizing this route that i'm trying to
0: do i love this yeah so you you were talking about how you've been climbing in the gym again and you'll have drawings of the the routes that you've been projecting with all the all the holds and everything i have a quote here tell me about the fucking hard green route it doesn't exist anymore ah oh, they took it down and i never did it yeah <laughs> damn i wish they would restore it so i could <laughs> Yeah. You worked on it for what, like 10 days? or Yeah.
1: And I was so close. I was like, I'd been up to the last move like 10 straight times and I was rested and I was ready to do it. And they didn't tell me they were going to remove it. And I showed up one day and it was like, oh my God, it's gone. <laughs> so, but that's just gym climbing. I mean, it's just silly, but yeah. then again. It was
0: also hard. It was 513 yeah, something? It's like,
1: yeah, it was 513 minus, but it uh-huh. was... Um, it just brought me back into that world and i mm. even at age you know i'll be 60 in in 5 months and and even after my hip replacement and my just everything i went through just getting out of climbing and um coming back it's that part of my brain that that part that is enjoys that it it it's, i enjoy it no less hmm. it's still every bit as exciting to me to piece together something and it's just fun as can be to do that that's i kind of liked you know people have different things and different different segments of the sport they focus on i mean obviously alex honnold focuses on a very different segment of the sport than i do hmm. but um you know you find your little area your little niche that you that you enjoy and um nothing really i mean nothing filled the gap mm. when i left it and that there i it's not like i found something else in my life that was like oh okay this is gives me the same satisfaction as <sighs> as piecing together this um hard route mm-hmm. You know, I was never a great on-site climber or a big wall climber. I just had my little niche that I did and that gave me a satisfaction and it still it still does hmm. right now for sure, That's,
0: which is great. Hmm. Uh, back in the 80s, you were also bouldering a lot and uh, you told me a story a few weeks ago when we were at lunch about your finger strength and it actually blew my mind. <laughs> it was really fascinating to hear, but uh, it doesn't sound like you were training on a fingerboard at the time but rather and correct me if i'm wrong but you were using the fingerboard just as kind of like a benchmarking tool to see where you were at well but, there
1: wasn't there weren't fingerboards okay there weren't hang boards
0: okay so. but you're, you were telling me about you had some like a metolius board or something and you would hang one-handed in a full crimp position and you were trying to make it to one minute and you never quite made it to one minute
1: yeah it it Chris Jones, from uh, when I was back in Eugene, mm-hmm. he would put up little wood blocks onto his rafters. Oh, okay. He would hang on these blocks and do these boulder problems. He was incredibly strong. And so I just kind of grew up thinking that's just what you did. And so I always, <laughs> there weren't hang boards. But uh-huh. you, I definitely, you know, you could always hang on the door jam above your door. And I don't even know exactly how I did it because there weren't boards, but I... I mean, I had some natural talent in, uh, in some ways and other ways I didn't, but I always had kind of really naturally strong fingers. Hmm. That was just something that for whatever reason I had. But I always crimped, like full on. Mm-hmm. I wasn't open hand strong. I was like the full on, you know, crimp with the thumb wrapped over the index finger. Yeah. And that's that's how I would hang. That's how I would, eventually when there were hang boards later in the 80s, that's what I would train with, everything was done that way, which mm. contributed to why my fingers no longer work. Yeah. So, but yeah, I could, um, I think when there was the first simulator, when that came out in 87, I would, I would just right hand, left hand, I would hang off the, the good edge, which is probably, I don't know, three quarters of an inch or something. You yeah. Know, full, full, just, just first pad, Uh huh. you know, and just see how long I could hang. And I always wanted to try to hang if I could hang one minute from one hand, With from one hand, that was always my goal, and I never, I never got it. But I, I was deaf. I was like fifty-one, fifty-two seconds. The first thirty <laughs> seconds, you just hang there, and it would be like just no problems, just kind of swinging your feet, swinging, and then you start suffering, and it would. I just never could do it, and. And now I can't hang one second, uh-huh. which I don't understand exactly <laughs> why. But well, for one thing, I can't uh, crimping. Uh. That I've lost that strength. I, hmm. I, um, and as it turns out, that was a really bad thing. It's like that's just common knowledge now. Do not you don't train, you don't do crimping all the time. Training, mm-hmm. you know the the people you know the the training now where you're doing short duration. You know five seven second hangs yeah you can't it's just not the it's not joints aren't made for that hmm. so but yeah there was a time when i was strong the, it's those, fascinating those days, i don't know if you realize are gone. i think
0: that's <laughs> i think even by today's standards you had world-class finger strength i mean i don't know if i know anybody that can do that That can hang. well
1: but i i wasn't even then that's a sort of power but it's it's it, when you're hanging for that long it's not power it becomes a I mean, there are people who could hang for a very short duration on things that I could never have hung off of. Okay. I'm sure now. Yeah. You know, people don't train. Nobody trains by hanging for, trying to hang a minute on one-handed on an edge. If they can do that, they're putting weights on themselves Mm. to make themselves heavier so you can...
0: Sure, but I don't know if I know very many people that can hang one-handed on that size of an edge, period, for... Five well, I,
1: I bet you a lot of people can. I mean, it, I don't.
0: I'm sure <laughs> it's still hard even today. It's still really amazing. Was that? Um, do you think that was a result of the hanging on the blocks and that sort of stuff, or was it just? Did you just have that finger strength from the climbing that you were doing?
1: I, I kind of just had that strength. Yeah. It was I, it wasn't? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I bouldered a lot. I, I I. But we weren't training. I, I didn't train. We weren't training. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I, I actually, yeah, there was a time looking way back into the past when I was, when I was strong.
0: Hmm.
1: It's nice for me at my age to be able to look back and at least have done what I did so I can, you know, I can go out to Smith Rock and I can like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> and now it's like, I'm, you know, struggling trying to do 5.11 out there, but it's like, <laughs> it was nice to be able to actually do the things back back then it would be be really hard to try to work through those routes now it just wouldn't work for me i don't Mm. i don't know i'd like to get in shape and i'd like to climb hard again but i don't think it's going to happen
0: you're climbing pretty hard in the gym from what it sounds like yeah
1: but i mean it's that's it i climb pretty (laughs) hard in the gym (laughs) i'm really good at the green route and (laughs) And then the green route's gone and it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't, you go out to Smith Rock and I go out to Smith Rock and I'm like on the rock, which I've spent my whole life climbing and I'll go out there and I'm like, just, I'm just stuck. I'm like, don't even Hmm. know, like there's so many places to put my feet. Like, what the hell do I do? And I, it takes me 10 minutes to climb a route that I should be climbing in two minutes because I just, my brain, you know how your computer when it's like buffering it's like the internet and that little thing is spinning a little beach ball the little yeah it's spinning that's what my brain does when <laughs> i go out and climb on a real rock it's like what the hell do i do what do i so it it's you know gym climbing has gotten me climbing again and it's it's great cuz it's gotten me to where i can be at least have some endurance and and be at least mildly strong but um but it's made me a worse i'm a worse climber i don't uh. Yeah, but now I'm, I'm actually climbing at Smith Rock because I'm trying to do a redo the guidebook. And yeah, so I'm kind of fighting my way back through that, and mm-hmm. it's. I think I can get there. I think, I think it's legit. I think you do. Your brain just doesn't. You get used to the gym, and you just don't process. Because when I when I see at Smith Rock, I see um. Too many options. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm wondering what to do. Yeah. Or what I could stand on. I can stand on everything. I see 25 different footholds. And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I'm just, I don't just, there's nothing that's intuitive anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that will come back,
0: maybe. Mm -hmm. But. So, yeah, so the guidebook. So you, before we got rolling, you were talking about how you've been working on that again. And and now you kind of have a fire under your butt to get it done by, you said October? The end of October. Yeah. 500 new routes. That's awesome. Yeah, and the last guidebook, what it had, like eighteen hundred routes.
1: Well, there were eighteen hundred, but there was bouldering routes in there, about three hundred some bouldering routes,
0: and that that was included in the
1: eighteen hundred. Yeah, okay. and this new guide won't have any a, a bouldering <clears throat> routes are nobody. Smith Rock bouldering is not that's not what Smith Rock is known for, and it's the book is getting so big, mm. the publisher is like, you know, you have to you have to add five hundred routes and keep it the same length. Mm. So the bouldering is just getting chopped out. Okay. But still there'll be over 2000 routes.
0: Yeah, Um, cool.
1: You know, the number of actual climbing routes is like, and most of these things have been done in the last three or four years, but it's increased 33% in three years. Mm -hmm. Huge activity and motivation for people out there.
0: Tell me about your box of tights.
1: It's somewhere in my house. There's a box I have. I kind of save all my old stuff. and um,
0: um. This goes back to uh, the video that I watched. I think it was uh, an add-on to the Pioneering Smith Rock video. And there's just a short segment, or maybe it was another one, but there was a short segment where the journalist was uh, with you and you were kind of showcasing your box of tights and you had an amazing purple pair with stars on it that was from La Sportiva, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know I've kind of misplaced it. It's it's oh. somewhere in my house. I know
1: it's there, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of my old I have my old. I mean it's just kind of funny. There was a I have I kind of saved all my old stuff. I threw out a lot more stuff than I wish. I wish I would have kept some of the old stuff, but mm-hmm. I threw out a lot of it. But the tights
0: I just couldn't. I mean it's still. Have you ever climbed in tights? No, I haven't. Yeah. I honestly I feel like I need to to be like a solid five fourteen climber before I put on tights. I feel like I'm not worthy of the tights. I'm I'm being completely serious. Yeah, but
1: what you might find is if you put on tights, you might suddenly be able to climb that. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: That's the way it feels. Oh, I've been doing it totally. I mean, backwards. I still love
1: the I love I I mean, I don't put tights on often and I never do it in public, but I've I put them on occasionally and when I put them on I'm instantly more flexible and huh. I'm just younger and I just there's <laughs> something about that where you just feel
0: like you can just the freedom. Yeah, the freedom and you can just move. So, you're so stylish too. Everyone back then like the all the guys had tights and then like you know, corresponding tank tops that that complemented the color yeah. scheme. Yeah, no, the 80s were a
1: great time. It was <laughs> yeah, I'm looking back looking back at it. I mean, my my daughter, who's 22, she'll look at pictures of me or videos, and she'll she'll just cringe. She'll just say, "Dad, what were you thinking?" She'll she'll just feel she'll be embarrassed for me. Yeah, because the it tights was and the mullet, the yeah. tights and the mullet, and just and I explained to her, you know, that was just the 80s. It was like bright colors and big hair, and that's what everybody did. And it was kind of fun. It was, yeah. You can always tell the 80s. You see a picture, you hear music. Yeah, it was a very distinctive decade. It
0: was. And then it, it sounds like it just ended as quickly as it started. Yeah, it just, it kind of needed to. One day, no one was wearing tights anymore. Yeah. And I don't even know why
1: we started wearing tights. Huh. But yeah, it just came and it went and probably never to return. I don't think you're ever going to see, I don't know, the top climbers anymore wearing tights. But yeah, I still have a box of tights. I still, I can still fit into them. But okay. I, I don't, um, I don't...
0: I don't go there. (laughs) You also have a really fascinating reading practice. Um, You mentioned to me that you read every day and you listen to lectures and and things like that. So tell me about your reading practice.
1: Well, I I like reading. I've read my whole life. I used to read just, I mean, I went to school, you know, I went Mm -hmm. after I, I, I got my finance degree from University of Oregon in 87. I went back years later, got my master's degree in business. I mean, I'm reasonably reasonably educated, but I I I, I went to school and only to discover school and my degrees taught me, showed me what I didn't want to do in my life. <laughs> And as it turns out, once I got my master's degree in business, it was like, okay, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I definitely don't want to do that. Hmm. But as I got older, I I just kind of, you know, learning is a cool thing. It's nice to read and learn things and um, get exposed to new ideas. So um, Hmm. I used to just read basically junk novels. Hmm. and, And I just started reading a lot of just classic, classic books. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of just classic books. And that's what I do now. I mean, mm. I have not just a list of several hundred books, but I have a hundred books. I have my next hundred books just lined up. Wow. And I just enjoy just buying books. And a lot of them are just old old books and um, they challenge me and some of them are really difficult. I mean, if you, like I started by just trying to read this, um, at the end of the century, they put together these lists of like the, the classic hundred novels of the twentieth century. Mm -hmm. And I found one of those lists and I just started like, okay, I'll I'll do it. Yeah. And so it started with Ulysses by James Joyce and it just and I'm I I have just I'll be done in August with that hundred books. And then I but now I have all these other lists and so I have I mean I'm I'm gonna run out of life before I run out of (laughs) books, unfortunately. Do you always finish everything? Oh, I always finish. Really?
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: It's the climbing thing, the whole projecting. Huh. Sometimes you have to project books the way you project routes, because some of them are intensely difficult to read. And some of them are. Yeah, try to read Finnegan's Wake. i, I That's you know, interesting. I've almost... read it, i read every word. It's, uh-huh. Yeah, but you, again, you have to project that. You just simply it, a dogged determination. You don't read it for pleasure, even though somehow <laughs> when you finally are done with it, you think, whoa, that was satisfying.
0: Do you always feel that way, or are there some where you're like, oh man, that wasn't worth the time? No, not I... one. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's cool. And how do And the... if it's
1: if it's there are books where you read, I don't know, in any art form. You when I was younger, I would listen to music, I would listen to read a book, I would see art in a museum, and I would think, oh, I hate that. Hmm. And and then you get older and you start thinking, well, maybe the problem is not the art maybe it's not the book maybe it's not the music maybe the problem is with me Mm. maybe i'm the one you know this is supposed to be something great maybe i'm the one that's just not seen it um and it's true i mean a lot of judgments we have it's what we're judging it's not that our attitudes that oh this sucks or this is no good or this is overrated it's not necessarily that it's overrated. in fact, it almost certainly isn't. It's more of just a limitation within ourselves or mm. views of things so it's it's helped me to just be open to open to to new things. Mm. You get older and what else you have to do it. You either do that or you just you know eventually you decline and you just we all do, but it's we might as well fight that as long as we can.
0: Hmm. Do you have a most impactful book that? That stands out from that list. I, I don't. Okay. I wish I did. Or even a couple that come to mind that that are favorites that you'd recommend. I, I mean, there.
1: Yeah, it's. I don't know, like just a, just a classic book like Ulysses by James Joyce. I mean, that's a it's a horrendously difficult book, and somehow, um, I read it twice, and somehow, hmm. it. The last chapter of that was one of the best things I've ever read in my life, huh. and so it's even though most of the time I was reading it, I was like, "What the hell?" You know, it was just an, was really difficult, but I, not that I would recommend it. It's like, again, it's just a peep. Some people like that stuff, and some people don't. If you just want a good read and you want to be entertained, no, pick up Stephen King. Don't <laughs> don't pick up
0: James Joyce. <laughs> Go climb a fun, steep, overhanging 512 somewhere instead of trying to bolt or not to be. Yeah, it's
1: kind of the same way.
0: <laughs> Is there something that you are excited about or looking forward to right now with uh with the new year, new decade?
1: Well, I'm I mean I am looking forward to it's a good thing for me with this um book and just being forced it's not like I'm being forced. Nobody's forcing me to do another guidebook at Smith Rock. And it's not like there's a tremendous demand or that the world is crying for a new Smith Rock guidebook, but there's 500 new routes. There should be one. But going out there, it puts me in touch with people. Hmm. And I have to, I'm very thorough. I have to do my research. I have to talk to people who've done the routes. I have to understand them. I So this place that I have all this history... Um but a lot of times I avoid. I have to go out there and I kinda have to just get myself to go up on these routes and that are you know, I have to do all these five elevens which feel really hard and I just have to it puts me back in that world and I connect with the people and um and they're a lot younger, but they're no different than me. They're just these the same it's like, it's the best it's for me. It's the absolute best. It's like just connecting with all the people. But cause I, I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pretty quiet introverted reclusive person. I, I tend to just hide. I don't, I am not a promoter. I don't, my brand, the Alan Watts brand <laughs> would be stronger if, but I don't, I would refuse. I will never, I just don't do that i don't want for me that's just the most repugnant thing that i can (laughs) think of is to try to promote myself Uh which kind of hurt me when i was when climbing started to become a business Mm. you know todd skinner was an amazing promoter for himself he did a tremendous job of that i was a terrible promoter Mm. i just didn't and and i still kind of am Mm. And, and i'm sorry i lost my train of thought there a little bit but
0: we were talking about what well, you're excited about. The guidebook, working oh, towards that, yeah.
1: And so now it's connecting with the people. Like if if I'm I'm 60, almost 60 years old, I'm not I'm not gonna connect with many people. Mm. I, I have, I mean, it's I have my family, which is very important to me, and a few friends, and but I'm not somebody that's just gonna make friends easily, except if I'm out climbing or at the climbing gym, suddenly mm. I'm like Mr. Social. And I, <laughs> I kind of know everybody and I'm talking to people and it's like, Oh, where are you from? And, and it's just, it's just fun. It's mm. like, those are, that's my community. As I grow older, that is my community and it's not going to leave me. Mm. It's a wonderful thing. It's a tremendous gift I have because I mean, my wife's been working at the medical center here in Bend for 40, almost 40 years. She's going to retire. She's done wonderful work and she's going to retire. And a year after she's retired, nobody's going to care. She's just, that's what happens. You do your job, you work your job, you spend your life and you you retire. Mm -hmm. And you move on and nobody cares. And in in climbing, climbing kind of gave me this thing where... I feel this connection, and I'll, I, I've always felt it, and I, I now know, I look ahead, and it's not like I'm thinking, oh, well, in 10 years, nobody's gonna have any memory of Smith Rock or anything I did in climbing. And it actually, it's not true, because there are actually, people care about history, and I was part of the climbing history for a few years, and it just is, follows me around, and it's um, it's my in with Young people. I mean, how old are you? 30. 30. I mean, I don't talk to many people your age, and, <laughs> uh-huh. but I find myself just to, again, I can connect with people. So and you get older and you realize it doesn't matter whether you did this route or that route or how many tries it took you or all that. It's just to be able to have a connection with people and knowing that you have it and that you will continue to have it in the future. That's what I look forward to. Hmm. I don't look forward to the... Um, you know, Alan Watts 2.0, the new, the (laughs) comeback, because it's not going to happen. It's just not. It will, my fingers will, you know, they'll limit me. I don't
0: know. They might set another green route in the gym. Yeah, (laughs) it's just not going to work.
1: But there's countless climbers that I've never met that I would love to climb with and just talk with and, Mm. you know, have a beer with or whatever. And like, that's, that's out there. It's out there every single day. And I, for me, that's, That is something I'm excited about.
0: That's so cool. Uh, Where can people connect with you? Are you on social media or anything? Or is there a way people can reach you? Nope. There's no way.
1: (laughs) There's no way to reach me. (laughs) That's the problem when you are reclusive like I am.
0: I am not reachable. Come to Smith Rock and just hope to run into you working on the guidebook. Yeah. I'm not on social, not on social media. That's okay. It always feels like
1: for me, social media to be on that is something that I need to do Hmm. and that it would be something I would not do very well at because I wouldn't, there are times when I just am not social and I don't want to respond, and I just so if I don't really want to be a flake, and I think mm. I'd be a, I think I'd be a flaky social media
0: person. <laughs>
1: okay, somebody would send me a message, and if it's I, they'd either hear back from me within a few hours or they would never hear back from me. <laughs> so
0: I can understand. Yeah, I don't
1: think I'm a social media person, but I'm not that hard. Smith Rock, yeah, it's not that hard to connect with me.
0: Yeah really, even though I can't offer much more than I, that. I can attest to that. So guidebook will be, it needs to be done by the end of October. should be out in June of 2021. Okay. A select guide out the next year.
1: Oh, cool. Which is Falcon really wants, they found that the, you know, not everybody wants the big book with mm. all the history and all the routes and it's it's almost overwhelmingly confusing. Mm-hmm. So they they found that the little smaller guides, which I never would have thought of doing, do well. So hmm. anyway, that makes
0: sense if you're passing through for just a week or something like yeah, that.
1: And there's a small, there's a select guide that was done years ago at Smith rock that still sells that I guess it'll compete with that.
0: Gotcha. Cool. Well, I, uh, I want to wrap up by reading something. This is a quote from you from that, uh, hydro flask film, the pioneering Smith rock. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes, but the quote from you at the end of that film, I, I just loved it. You said, the fact that I've done something, just this little slice of a little tiny sport, as insignificant as it is, I do recognize that it touched other people's lives. It's good to feel that I've contributed. People will continue to do this. And I, I can just say personally, Alan, that I've, uh, I have moved to Bend seven years ago. I've been climbing at Smith for seven years and it's completely changed my life. And it's been an amazing experience and it's taught me so much. And I... Have you to thank in large part for for all of that? And I know that um, I know a lot of people who could say the same thing. And uh, you've really left an incredible incredible mark on this place. And you were incredibly generous with uh, with pushing the standards the way you did, and, and challenging the norms the way that you, that you did. And it's really been an amazing thing. So, um, well, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah,
1: and it uh, again that uh, that quote when I hear it, it I remember seeing that for the first time. And I watched that video and I, at the end I was watching myself and I was kind of like walking along Smith rock and the music was playing. And, and it was, I was like, wow, I, that was good that I actually said that because that, that's exactly <laughs> how I feel, yeah, you know, and, but it's, yeah, it's, it's cool that that's how it's all, it's all worked out. Cause that's all we can, any of us do is you just, you know, hopefully make a difference in the lives of some people somehow. And, um, yeah, I gave what I had to give to climbing and to Smith rock and to just the, you know, climbing in the U S and, um, and I've gotten back like way more Hmm. and continue to give back, get back way more than I ever, ever gave. So for me, it's just a a very good situation.
0: Hmm. Do you have any final thoughts for climbers these days for climbers that might be visiting Smith one of these days?
1: Oh, um gosh, I, I I don't have final thoughts. <laughs> that's that's a tough one because that's, that's when fine. you really have to just like come up with the lofty. Although I think in that interview when I came up with that quote and just which is really kind of it. It was just like kind of um you know, you're here for a little while, you just make your little difference in just the whatever little tiny area you have influence on in your life, then you know, that's all the more you can do. And Mm -hmm. I think that when I made that quote, the guy actually said, do you have any final thoughts? (laughs) And I said, no, I have no final thoughts, but then I came up with that. So uh, I shouldn't sell myself short.
0: Well, that's, Um, that's a great one. I think that's something wonderful to leave.
1: You know, I was thinking about it though. This is like, this hasn't anything to do with final thoughts. It was just, I was thinking about just the the climbing and just how I was trying to get—I was trying to get better. I was kind of competitive. I was looking for—I mean, basically. Um, I, in the eighties, I was. People would call me a cheater. He's cheating. He's cheating. It's cheating what he's doing. Anybody could do that. He's cheating. And I gave a talk, and I looked up. I actually just—I'm just, just going to Google the word cheater. And it was like to gain an unfair adva- an advantage or something like that. And it's like that's exactly what I did. I am a <laughs> cheater. That's exactly it. I I cheated. That's it. I, I came up with this. I was just open and creative and just like this. How am I going to get better? This is what I'm going to do. I cheated. Uh-huh. <laughs> and but I've had this dream, I've, I've, which I've had like year for years. And it's like, it's kind of a funny dream. And I still have it occasionally. And it's always the same. It's like, um, I mean, I think back to when I was climbing, like at my best and kind of what it felt like to climb. And it, there got to be this point where climbing, I felt tremendously light. Hmm. Like just, I would climb and I'd, I'd have days at Smith Rock when I would be warming up, like I would do these traverses or these solos, and it would be crisp and a perfect day. And I would have in my mind, you know, gravity is gonna have to try awfully hard to knock me off the rock because I just don't feel like I'm gonna get knocked off the rock today. I just feel so solid. And I would have this dream again where I am climbing. It's either like, I don't know, I'm just out climbing. And what's happening is I am lighter than air. And basically I am kind of floating up and so I'll be climbing this route. And what I'm trying to do is, I'm kind of just like floating up it. And I'm actually trying to hold on to the holds to make it look as though, so that nobody can tell that I'm actually <laughs> not just floating, but it's where I'm holding on to the holds, but they don't realize I'm actually weightless and I can just float. And for some reason, I've always had this dream of just being at the base of a route, a really hard route, and just kind of floating where you're just touching the <laughs> holds, but you're just floating up the route and i don't know why i have that dream and maybe it's but there's always that element of i can't let anybody know what's really going on <laughs> oh, and yeah. so i think it kind of stems huh. back to all those years of cheating of being mm. of trying to gain this unfair advantage sport climbing is an unfair advantage if you're comparing it to traditional climbing
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um yeah i hope i have that dream tonight it's kind of a <laughs> nice dream you imagine yourself at the base of the hardest routes you've ever would hope to do and find that all of a sudden you're just rising up through the air with no effort and you're like grabbing onto the holes just so people won't see that it's like oh well he's just weightless he's floating up the route and it's like anyway it's kind of a funny That's funny so cool. image. all
0: right alan well, right, um, good. well thank you so much that was so fun bunch,
1: so <laughs> You might need to trim that
0: down. A <laughs> I might need to. Maybe I'll need to publish this as a two parter. But um, again, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for your All time. Right. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. enjoyed right. it very much. <laughs> Cheers. Hey friends, before you go, be sure to check out Athletic Greens. I truly am a fan of this stuff. I've been taking it every day for about a year now. I love it, it's refreshing, it tastes good, and it provides awesome all-in-one nutritional insurance. If you want to try it out, head over to athleticgreens.com/nugget to get some free vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your purchase. Also, be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support my finger training. I can't recommend it enough if you are training your fingers, so check it out. Head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code nugget15 at checkout. You'll save 15% off your next order and you can check it out and Give those tendons the building blocks they need to get stronger. And finally, don't forget to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the app store. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches at Lattice Training. It's awesome. So go check it out and see if you like it and get ready to train like a pro. And that is it, my friends. I hope you are enjoying some downtime over this holiday break or at least I hope you get that soon. We're coming towards the end of another year here, getting towards the end of 2022. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you one more time to all of you for listening. It means the world to me. And everything that you guys do to share the podcast is such a great help. All the conversations that you have about it, sending it to friends, texting about it, sharing it in your Instagram stories, whatever, it makes a world of difference. And I know it's happening because the podcast is growing and that is thanks to you guys. So thank you. I love you. I really appreciate all of you. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time.
1: Like we do it Cause no one can do it, like go we do it, like go we do it, like we do it Cause
0: no one can do it, like go we do it, like go we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Like we do it. Like we do it.